Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is July 26th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Congratulations, Freehole. I didn't oh, know yeah. this, but Freehole said the Phillies had a three-run homer they did. late in the game last night. Late in the game, I didn't see it. Um, when Eighth I went inning. to bed, the Braves were up 3-2, maybe 4-3-ish, yep. somewhere there about in the fourth or fifth or sixth inning. Um, but Freehole came in. A bit ecstatic this morning, saying that um, what's his name, Priel? What's the kid's name that hit the um, Bryson Stott? Okay, um, three-run homer in the eighth inning. Yep. Okay. Yep. And the Braves lose a, a game, but the Mets were off a game off uh, yesterday. The Mets are playing the Yankees, if I'm not mistaken. Braves playing the Phillies and then the Mets in kind of consecutive series here. So, um, if the Phillies are going to get back in it, they've got to make up some ground right now. Uh, so this is a much bigger series for the Phillies, I would say. Uh, Friel's nodding his head in agreement. I think the, you know, I don't want to say this is a must sweep, but the uh, the Phillies have to make up a little ground in this series, and then make up a little ground when they play the Mets head to head. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and uh, so we're getting Gene Segura back sometimes this, sometime this week, and Harper probably in a couple weeks. Did you hear what he just said? Mm-hmm. We're getting. Yep. Does he not know where he is? <laughs> he has traveled south of the Mason-Dixon That's line. That's right. What's this we stuff? Yeah. I mean, we are the Braves. That's we right. are the Gamecocks. <laughs> we are the Tigers. I mean, they're, they're, you can't come down here and espouse those. I mean, you can say, the, you know, the Mets or the Yankees or the, or the Phillies. Um, when I was younger, Freehold, the great debate within my, um, I don't know, group of baseball fans was who was the better third baseman, George Brett or Mike Schmidt? I mean, that was kind of a central argument that we had, one with another. What do you mean? What do you... I feel like you know the answer to that. I think it's a pretty close... Uh, yeah. Mike Schmidt. Uh, that's close. Well, Michael Jack Schmidt. Uh, Michael Jack Schmidt or George Brett. Um, last guy to hit 400 at Labor Day in a baseball season was George Brett. End of the season, 390. Went in the slump the next year at 347. Um, the next year, Brett hit for a better average. Schmidt hit for more power. Um, they were both gold glove third basemans, and from what I understand, have a, a pretty close relationship and bond from those days being compared uh, one to another. But um, we ain't the Phillies. We are the Braves. This is south of the Mason-Dixon line, and that's just a part of our um, vocabulary that we don't allow uh, to exist. And, of course, the Braves. There he goes. Now he's making yeah, it up. Yeah, see. He's, he's trying to gain a little sympathy there you go. Of, the, uh, of the host and co-host. We were within a half game I mean, before we lost on Sunday. Who was? We, the Braves. Okay, we, okay. we, we. You can get away with that. That's you're right. right. You're right. We were, but you're kind of a transplant. Game. You're somewhat of a transplant. Yeah. I've been, I've been a Braves fan longer than a okay. fan of any other team. Good deal. Even though I grew up with the Big Red Machine. Well, I mean, the Braves are the South's team. I mean, name a team. I mean, the Alabama Crimson Tide, the Clemson Tigers, the Georgia Bulldogs, the Gamecocks. Uh, Miami doesn't count. Miami's a country within itself. Miami is not the South, right? I mean, can we agree to that? Miami is a nation within this nation. The Atlanta Braves are the most popular Southern sports team in American history. Yeah, I mean, the, the Alabama Crimson Tide may have a more intense and loyal fan base. The Georgia Bulldogs, the Gamecocks, and Tigers probably do. But across the South, in other words, the um, there are going to be a number of Alabama, or probably already have been, school's about to start back, there have already been a number of Alabama Crimson Tide fans that made that pilgrimage. The truest part. Gamecock fans, Clemson fans, Florida Gator fans. I mean, it's the only thing, it's the only sports team the South seems to find consensus with. Uh, the SEC just means more. 
Yeah, but it, we don't get along. You know what I mean? We, we, we don't like one another during the football season, but everybody kind of uh, supports the Braves because they are, uh, since moving from Milwaukee, the South's sports franchise. And the Braves have been promoting college nights starting soon, so yeah. they're going to have And I think they've done that giveaways. several years oh, yeah. in a way. You know, uh, they have a, a Gamecock night and a Tiger night and a Crimson Tide night. Probably I'm smart on their part. 843-661. Oh, yeah. So um, I don't have a rundown. Well, I do have a rundown this morning, but I got a simple question for the Royal Rev of Radio. Um, you want to start serious and get stupid, or you want to start stupid <laughs> and get serious? <laughs> well... I mean, I've had a, um, I've had a revelation. Let's start stupid. Okay. Well, I mean, that's normally where we yeah. start, and where we'll more than more than likely end up. I need up. to be a little more awake to be serious, um, maybe. Okay. Let, let's start stupid. Okay. Um, the Merriam-Webster dictionary. Let me get this. Uh, here you go. You ready? Um, and the reason I think this is appropriate to lead to this morning's show with uh, the Merriam-Webster's uh, online dictionary. Everything's online now. Um, I guess um, has caved to the trans agenda and in the spirit of wokeness and activism, um, the dictionary publisher has added a secondary definition of female that defines the term, not person any longer, the term as having a gender identity that is opposite of male. Now, now the key term here is gender identity. I mean, in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, the online edition They've actually included, once again, the secondary definition that includes, um, as part of the definition, I want to read it again, having a gender identity that is the opposite of male. Um, hmm. It's not the sex opposite of the male. Well, what is male? Well, there you go. <laughs> but I would imagine we will. I mean, we've not, we're not talking a lot about males now because we're talking about abortion and, uh, you know, I guess the... Um, you know, somebody not being able to find what a woman is. The reason I'm starting with this, um, uh, gender is now, per Merriam-Webster, not directly connected to sex. That's kind of odd. Um, the primary definition of female uh, or relating to uh, or being the sex that typically has the, these words. I mean, this is in the dictionary. This is in MSNBC. This is in CNN. Uh, this is where you used to go like, for the truth. Sure. I mean, well, what does the word mean? I mean, when you're doing a school project, I never did. But when, I mean, I've heard people that made good grades did those things. Um, but you're getting words in the dictionary now like identity and typically. I mean, how does a definition, how, how does a dictionary include as part of its definition typically? I mean, that's not defining a word. That's debating what a word means. So I want to say that we're not having, I mean, this is not the Merriam-Webster online dictionary any longer. It's the Merriam-Webster online debate of what a word means or does not mean. And in this corner, you've got the woke activist. In this corner, you've got what I'd call the traditionalist, uh, the textualist, you know, like like we talk about the, the Supreme Court justices. What does the word mean? Well, the word typically means, or the word, you know, it identifies as, or the sex identifies as, it's lunacy. It's nonsense. And here's the danger in that. A um, couple of real important days of the Biden administration are coming up right around the bend. Tomorrow and Thursday are, are very interesting moments in this administration's existence. I mean, I don't think there's a chance to turn it around. I mean, as we say, it is what it is. I think the Biden administration has lost the faith of the American public, 
Uh, they're starting to play word games now. It's not unusual. So with the Biden administration, and I've um, got two articles here I want to read. One's Financial Times. The other is the Wall Street Journal. So hold on to that now. Merriam-Webster changes the definition of female. They didn't really change it to anything other than whatever you choose it to be, typically and, uh, and identify as. Uh, so the place you got to get definitions of words has now is bought into the, uh, the, the wokeism and, uh, you know, we can debate. So it's not a dictionary. It is now an online um, center for debate. Uh, what does freehold believe that word means? What does Reb believe that word means? Um, for the last several days, I really noticed it Sunday on the morning shows, um, there's this great debate about recession. You know, when I go back to Obama, in the Obama administration, they coined the phrase jobs saved. Remember that? The stimulus bill, um, some of their health care antics. It was all about, well, I mean, I know what the, I know what the, uh, the, the traditional way we measure economic activity and growth, but jobs saved. And, and you know what? Jobs saved doesn't matter because you can, I mean, I can come up with any number. I mean, who knows what that number is? How do you calculate what jobs saved are? Well, you fire the guy that didn't give you the right number and hire another guy who gave you, the, you know, a better number. Um, a rosy scenario is what the Biden, excuse me, the Obama administration was looking for. And they kind of allowed jobs saved to become mainstream economic theory. In other words, that there is no answer to that. Nobody knows how many jobs were saved as a result of this legislation or that legislation. But the Obama administration knew they had a complicit media, knew they had a hoodwinked public. And the next thing you know, jobs saved. I mean, you hear economist after economist, politico after politico come on the airwave saying, well, you know, yeah, we had a, a decline in GDP growth, but look at the jobs we saved. You know, the, the Harvard Institute of Economics says we saved 2.2 million jobs. And nobody ever said, how you know that? I mean, is there is there a calculus out there somewhere? And it goes back to really Liz Cheney and Brett Baer yesterday, uh, excuse me, Sunday. We talked a little bit about it yesterday when Baer had a chance to really pin Liz Cheney down about fact or not, you know, um, one-sidedness or not, witch hunt or not kangaroo court or not show trial or not and he chose not to and there's an article in real clear politics today that the um the the murdoch entities have been basically ordered instructed to turn the fire on trump i mean this is kind of an internal memo that some say is 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 real some say nobody's seen the internal memo but mm-hmm. there's some um some scuttlebutt out there in radio talk land as we research for these shows um that there's an internal memo at Murdoch uh, where, where some of the kids, I think his two sons now run the business. Uh, they're, they're not the conservative warriors that Roger Ailes was. And, um, and now they're, they're basically saying, you know, it's time to, to, to rid ourselves or purge Trump of the, of the system. So hold on to this. I'm, we're jumping around here. So, so Webster changes the definition of female. The Biden administration says, well, if Webster can change the definition of female, surely we can change the definition of recession. <laughs> I mean, recession right. historically has meant two consecutive quarters of negative GDP That's growth. That's what I've always heard. Well, I mean, the medium prediction of the first quarter was uh, a growth of 0.4. I mean, that's what uh, the, the economists, the experts, uh, the Keynesians, uh, that, that's what they predicted was going to happen. And now we um, now we find out that the first quarter was negative GDP growth of one point, negative 1.6. So you missed it by two points. You missed it by two percentage points. You know how many hundreds of billions of dollars of economic activity you got to be wrong to miss it by two points? I mean, seriously, it's not. I mean, the median prediction from all the Fed governors and all the Fed economists were um, first quarter growth of 0.4. That's minuscule. 
I mean, that's teetering on recession anyway. So they had, they, they had already accepted that we're, that we're more than likely not going to have, you know, a, a fast growth first quarter. Um, but we don't want to tell the president we're going to have negative growth because we may lose our jobs. So we'll, we'll make it up. Job saved. Uh, female. You know, married. Well, it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, <laughs> there is no black and white any longer, right? I mean, female means whatever you choose it to be. Recession means whatever you choose it to be. So we'll just make it up. We'll concoct whatever we need to concoct to make sure we stay in the good graces of this feeble-minded president. So uh, median predictions in the first quarter, 0.4. Real economic activity, negative 1.6. Once again, they missed it by two percentage points. That is hundreds of billions. That may be a trillion-dollar miss of economic activity. Um, so I saw yesterday the first prediction for what is going to happen Thursday. Uh, Wednesday, we get uh, the Fed Open Market Committee meets tomorrow, and it's already assumed they're going to raise interest rates 0.75, 75 basis points. That gets to what, the federal fund rate, 2.5, 2.5, 2.75? Uh, I think it's 2.5, 2.5. Um, so if they raise rates uh, by 0.75 basis points tomorrow, it, um, it gets the Fed rate at about 2.50. That would be considered, uh, from what I read last night, a position of neutrality. We're not trying to discourage growth. We're not trying to, to lead to growth. Um, but, but, but it'll be the second consecutive month we've had a 0.75 interest rate uh, hike. Uh, welcome to the world of what I call normal financing. So, so combine Wednesday with Thursday's Commerce Department because uh, Thursday, Wednesday, we'll find out whether or not, I mean, we're pretty sure this is going to happen, but Wednesday, we'll find out whether the Federal Open Market Committee is going to raise rates 0.75. Jamie Dimon already knows. You don't, but he does. And he's already calculated on what this is going to do. So um, so once again, that gets us to a target rate of 2.50. Don't quote me on that. It's either 225, 250, or 275. I think it's 250, and that would be a position of neutrality. That, that's a reasonable place for the Fed to be if we were growing. That, see, this is the oddity in all this. Um, so Thursday, the Commerce Department is going to uh, release its estimate of second quarter gross domestic product. I would argue that the estimates will be uh, positive growth of 0.2. I'm just guessing. I don't have anything to base that on except the previous quarter. So I believe the Fed is going to predict, uh, excuse me, the Commerce Department is going to predict that second quarter GDP growth was plus 0.2. They know that's not true. They know it's wrong, but they don't want to be the the ones that basically suggest confirm confirm that we're in, in recession. a recession. Okay. It'll, be a, it'll be a full employment recession. Once again, they missed it by multiple hundreds of billions of dollars in the first quarter. 0.4 growth first quarter, point, I'm predicting 0.2 um, estimated growth in the second quarter. There'll be a revision that'll probably have it somewhere at around minus 1.6 again-ish. We're in a recession, so there is no debate now. I mean, to me, there's no debate about what the definition of woman is. There's no definition about, or excuse me, no debate about what the definition of recession is. Recession is historically meant. And the reason I know that they're preparing for bad news, they probably already have some of the preliminary data. The reason we know is Janet Yellen, every time she opens her mouth, if you can lean down far enough to hear, because she's about three feet tall, um, <laughs> but every time she opens her mouth, she says, well, you know, de uh, recessions, 
are not two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. In fact, there are a lot of different ways to define recession. Just as there are a lot of different ways to define a woman, there are a lot of different ways to, re- to um, define a recession. So today, excuse me, tomorrow and Thursday, I mean, we're talking about serious business here now. Tomorrow, once again, the Fed Open Market Committee is going to probably raise interest rates by 0.75, well, 75 basis points. Here's the oddity of this, Rev. We're going to raise interest rates, 75 basis points, the day before the, the, the Commerce Department says we're probably in a recession. I mean, there'll be a lot of narrative and commentary. Wall Street will decipher, you know, some of the Commerce Department's uh, reporting as they see fit. So so I'm thinking about when is the last time that they, that, 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 I don't know, those in charge of monetary policy and economic activity, when is the last time we raised rates by nearly 100 basis points the day before we officially declared ourselves in a recession? I mean, if you think about that, guys, I mean, that's how screwed up we've got this economy. I mean, that's how we've allowed the Fed to so manipulate what we call normal economic cycles and realities. It's bizarre to me that in consecutive days, once again, I'm not an economist, but I'm somewhat of a student of the economy. I've lived in the economy all of my adult life. The day after the Fed raises rates, our constructors of the economy are going to tell us more than likely we're in a recession. And I'm talking about J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, you know, Jamie, the Jamie Diamonds of the world will not care what if commerce says we have, you know, the estimated growth is 0.2. Diamond and his crowd, all the Wall Streeters, they know that that's bad news. And once they revise, that they will have missed it again by several hundreds of billions of dollars of economic activity. Uh, it may be a trillion bucks. I mean, I'd, I'd have to really try to struggle to get to the point of how much economic activity you got to miss. But we normally raise rates when? To cool the economy down. I mean, that's why we raise rates. We got to slow this economy down. This economy's too hot. We have so bought in to this Keynesian economy or modern monetary theory or the nonsense the Fed has spewed year after year after year that we're going to raise rates by 75 basis points the day before we declare ourselves in a a recession. Wow. And we're the preeminent superpower on the planet. And we can't manage our economic affairs <laughs> any that really better mean than that. They don't know. They what don't have to do? a clue. I mean, we are so out of kilter. I mean, we, we have bought into whatever it is we. But I'm not sure I know what we bought into. But but there is no. We're we're always. I mean, we're always raising rates to slow the economy down. We're and we're we're raising rates at a time that the economy is slowing itself down. I mean, inflation is rampant. I mean, it, you know, Walmart had a terrible report. Target, uh, Best Buy, all these retailers are saying that the price of food, the price of fuel is, I mean, rocket science here. You ready? I mean, if it costs me 60 bucks to fill up instead of 30, if a bag of groceries costs me 80 instead of 50, I don't have as much money to go buy those iPods, right? I mean, that's a natural, that's I mean, true. I don't need an economist to suggest that to me, but in, you know, in our infinite wisdom, and it really, it, it, I, I hadn't used this word in a long time. It really and truly confirms the suspicion of how unserious we become. I mean, we are a, 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 a nation of 330 somewhat serious people, but on economic issues and financial affairs, we have just accepted whatever these rulers of the universe say to be real, and it's gotten to us to a place raising interest rates <laughs> by 75 basis points the day before we declare ourselves in a recession. Wow.
Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. So when you talk about what the uh, what they will predict, I guess they're going to kind of kind of predict what the second quarter growth or not estimate. was. The estimate. Okay, mm-hmm. predict, estimate, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, <laughs> Their words, not mine. Exactly. So so if they estimate that, I mean, but you still you have to admit, I mean, it's, it can't be an easy task. Oh, no, it's hard. I mean, it's very complicated. Estimate it accurately. But, but landing an airplane is hard. You know, uh, building a race car that passes inspection is hard. People <laughs> have to do it, though. I mean, there's certain things you're required to do. Once you accept responsibility for the job, you, you got to do the job better than what I think they're doing. And, and I don't doubt that Jerome Powell says something similar to this. we got a call. We'll get there. Um, to get interest rates to a place that does not stimulate growth. I mean, that, that, that'll be some of the commentary and some of these Fed minutes. And once again, the Fed Open Market Committee will meet tomorrow. They already know what they're going to do. And, and the majority of Wall Street insiders know what they're going to do. And maybe or maybe not, that's baked in into some of the cake of investment. Maybe, wa- you know, Walmart's is based on sales. Same year or a year-to-year sales, same store sales, all these other sorts of things. And they see a decline. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's hard. No question about it. It's incredibly complicated to predict and to try and estimate what the what the economic activity of economy as big as America's is, but you're paid to understand it. I mean, there are metrics and measures of which you apply. I mean, they, these people are economists. I'm not, um, but but I don't think it. You, you got to. the The point I'm trying to make is that historically we raise rates to slow economic activity down, and, and we're not doing that. We're raising rates to try and address inflation. We're in an economy of of, of a negative GDP growth. And we're raising rates because we've allowed inflation. And here's the problem. We kept interest rates too low for too long. I mean, we really did. And I think Powell, in his heart of hearts, knows that. He won't admit it. But it's just another misstep by the Federal Reserve. Let's go to the uh, to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Hey, guys. So I'm, I'm trying to, like, you, you said something in all of that that was actually very true, which is it's it's never really happened like this quite before. Not that I can remember, Larry, and I read a good bit last night, and there's, you know, a lot of these economists and historians are struggling trying to find a precedent to what we're doing now. Yeah, I don't think there is one, and here, there's almost a, a, uh, uh, an op- a, two opposing forces at work here, but then you have to ask yourself the question is, why do we have inflation, and some of it is because we've allowed cheap money to enter the market, and we've created too much demand. But the other problem is, is that we really have a problem with our supply. And so if I, if I break the whole United States down and just say I'm a company, okay, and last year everybody wanted to buy a billion dollars worth of stuff from me, and I had $900 million worth of stuff, then I would turn up the volume on the price a little bit, take advantage of the fact that there was more demand than there was supply. But if this year I've got the same demand, $900 billion, but everybody quit and left me, and China won't send me my equipment, and I can only make $500 million worth of stuff, but I've got $900 million worth of demand, I'm going to ratchet the price up again, right? Mm-hmm. My demand didn't change, but let's say that at some point I just can't, I can't quadruple my prices. So this year I only sell $800 million worth of stuff. Well, it looks like I'm in a recession, but, man, I made a ton of money. I just don't have as much stuff to sell as what people want. So some of this, the, the, the inflation is being driven by demand, not just cheap money, too much money chasing too few goods. The, the reason we have too few goods is because we don't have raw materials or we've got supply chain issues. So it's kind of like a double whammy. Then you've got 
the fact that we're raising interest rates to try to cool that inflation, will it kill the demand? And if so, how much? Because traditionally you'd say raising interest rates, making things, you know, altogether more expensive would kill demand. But how much demand do we have pent up? Because we just raised the rates more than we'd raised them before. Wall Street threw a hissy fit for about a week. But we're still in an inflationary time, which means there's still demand. So I'm still – I'm almost with Janet Yellen on this, which I can't believe I'm saying. But we may not be in a traditional recession. It's, it's, I don't think it's going to look like it's ever looked before. I don't think it's good. I'm not saying, oh, everything's going to be great and just you wait and see. But I don't think it's going to look like 2008. I don't think it's going to even it's, – it's probably going to look closer to the 1970s. But I don't think anybody really knows where this is headed. We, well, I mean, we broke we broke the model by by keeping interest rates as low as we did yeah. for as long as we did, Absolutely. and the macroeconomic stimulus. We've never done that at the same time. I agree, I agree. So, so I don't know that any of us can really accurately predict what's going to happen next. If Americans still feel optimistic about the future, their demand will will remain, and if we could fix supply chain issues, we might could. It's almost like when when you're skidding in a in a in a snowstorm. If you can mash the gas, sometimes you can get out of the skid. You don't always hit the brakes. So so I don't know. I think I think the consumer will have to pull us out of this one. I don't think the Fed can do it. I don't think the Treasury can do it. I don't think J.P. Morgan can do it. I think the only thing that can happen is is if we remain optimistic about our future as a nation, then maybe we'll pull out of it with our own economic activity, even at some slightly higher rates that may help lower some price pressure. I don't know. Well, that's what it's explains. Almost like, you know, it's almost like the forces are aligned against each other, but yeah. we'll see. Thank you, Larry. I mean, that, that's a, that's a, um, that's a thoughtful opinion. I, I don't know if it's right or not. I don't think Larry knows if it's right or not. I, I will say this, and this is kind of anecdotal, but it's not. Um, I've got friends in the hospitality business. I mean, I'm a, I'm a small partner in a hospitality business, and um, so, so I keep up with it to some degree. But, but we've got folks in our, you know, part of our partnership that are far more versed and far more um, understanding of that market. Um, a year ago, to Larry's point, a year ago, a buddy of mine in, in the hospitality business um, has multiple locations. He said, look, the consumer has money, and I have capacity, but I don't have the staff. Um, in other words, when I open my doors at 11 o'clock in the morning, I mean, and I look in my kitchen, and I normally have four cooks. I got three. I look at my weight staff. I normally have 16. I got 12. I know my capacity is diminished. There are people with stimulus checks in their checking account, and they want to come eat, and I want to feed them. But when I look at my labor, when I look at my manpower, I mean that literally, figuratively, not literally, please uh, don't get offended by that, um, then I know I can't do as much as my business could do if I were fully staffed. That's some of the supply chain issue Larry's talking about. It's not just titanium and, you know, we, we talk about um, uh, the, the, the raw materials it takes to make the, the, X, the Y, or Z. Yeah, the chips. Some of that would be semiconductors would be a great example of the breakdown of a supply chain. And we don't have as many of those as we need. And we got cars sitting in airport parking lots, just, you know, one after the other, after the other, after the other, waiting on this specific. I mean, that's supply chain, but there's also a supply chain of labor. And when you're in a certain sector of the economy and the consumer's flush, I mean, they're not as flush now as they were last year, but the stimulus checks and all these other things, the rebates and, and some of the other um, money, unexpected, found money would be a better way to say it. So, so someone working, making 50 grand a year, all of a sudden gets an extra six or eight grand. I mean, they, you know, they're rolling. I mean, they're ready to go out and eat. 
and, and this person who owns the restaurant wants them to come out and eat, and he wants to take care of those people, but, but he is short on labor. And, and why is he short on labor? Because the very people wanting to come eat this restaurant got that six or $8,000 stimulus check. The cooks and the wait staff also got you know, more money. So they're less inclined to be motivated to go and work. Why am I going to work today when I got eight grand in my checking account? I mean, I normally have 80 bucks in my checking account. I got eight grand and 80 bucks now. I'm not going to work every day. The boss man wants me to come to work. And we de-incentivized, you know, the uh, the workforce. And I think that's, um, I think we got to look at the supply chain, not just as the raw materials it takes to make semiconductors, but also the people that need to come to work so the the, the business can maximize its potential um it's just it's an and i think larry's on to something here um maybe the model that we based recessions on historically in america is a i don't say an outdated model but right now at this moment in time does not apply because once again um you normally raise interest rates to a place that does not stimulate economic growth if you believe some of the, uh, I mean, the Walmart talking point, we'll get to the phone here, and the Walmart talk, talking point, you know what they said? The reason they're seeing a decline in, in profit and they're um, a little bit less optimistic, bearish on their uh, on their stock is, and I'm talking about Wall Street analyzing Walmart as a company and stock, they see uh, internally within their data that people are buying groceries, which are low margin items, and they don't have the disposable income to go buy, you know, the others, the, the televisions, the radio, not radio, the, uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, the, the, whatever other luxury purchase or, or unnecessary purchase. I mean, you got to have food. You got to have fuel, right? I mean, you got to put fuel in your car to get to work. You got to put uh, food on the table to keep everybody fed. And, and those are a lot of the low margin items. So when Walmart did there, I mean, I read Walmart's report last night. Walmart basically says that people are, they're pinched. You know, fuel costs more. Groceries cost more. They got to buy that fuel, got to buy that grocery. But over here where the, where the wardrobe is, where the attire and electronics are in the Walmart store, they're just not buying as much of that. And that's the that's the high margin items. And therefore, same store sales, same store profitability is going to be um, not what they expected it to be. I mean, that's that's not rocket science. I mean, they can make it sound like rocket science. But Dave Baker's only got so much money. It's a lot, but it's only so much. <laughs> Dave's going to buy fuel. He's going to buy food. And, and you know, when food and fuel are affordable, he may, you know, wander over to the electronics department and buy an iPad, right? <laughs> yeah, but no new TVs these days. Well, I mean, you hear it. I mean, that, so, so that's, I mean, that happens millions of times in this economy. And again, I use the grocery store example, real example from this past weekend, picked up a few things, expected it to be 40 or $50. It was 74 and that uh, and that really hurts. There's the, hits. The, there's the the sweatshirt on the other side of the store that doesn't get purchased. I mean, it's it's pretty exactly. simple when you really break it down. But I mean, Larry makes an interesting point. Air, the, the way he and I try to look at things historically m- may be not fair to where we are right now in today's economy. Let's go to the phone, Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Hey guys. And I wonder, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer, you know, you wonder if these guys are just that inept, seemingly totally unqualified for for, for the job that which they have, or are they just liars? Or are they lying because they're so inept, they screwed it up so bad, now they have to lie about it to keep their job. I think, I think that's a lot of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so... We haven't talked about the price of gas yet. When, when, when you're artificially managing interest rates, 
And then things happen like you intentionally shut off 40% of your fuel supply. The world's, you know, a huge percentage of the world's fuel supply since we were the biggest producer when they chopped 40%. And then what you're talking about, we, we, we haven't had computer chips in, what, two years now when we're still not making any? And then you've got the whole thing with the gasoline. It's got to be some kind of combination of the fact that they're just so bad at what they do, and they're liars. Whether they're lying because they have to or because they want to, I don't know. I think I think it's because they have to. But, I mean, and then you look at what they're doing with these definitions. They're trying to fundamentally hoodwink us by changing the language by, by changing the meaning of words kind of kind of like right in the middle of the of, of the game you want to change the rules and, and who are we going to vote for now um how is this all going to affect november ken that's that that's part of what i want to know you said i think you told us yesterday you're going to talk to mr kahaley in the next couple of days how does this all affect what's going to happen in november and then in in 2024 as well you guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Before we take our break, incompetence, intentional. How about beholden? Don't forget that word. Beholden. Who are these movers and shakers beholden to? What promises have they made? What promises must be kept? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. Dale asked about the politics. I'm going to get into that in the second hour. We don't have enough time in this segment. Got about three or four minutes here. But, I mean, I want to really walk through where I think we are a week away from the Arizona primary, which I think is a big deal. Maybe I'm reading uh, more to this or more into this than most other analysts are, but I think Blake Masters and Kerry Lake, I mean, if they if they win, Trump's in. I mean, it's over. I mean, he's going to run for president, and I'm convinced now that he probably should. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that in the next really? hour. I, I am. I mean, okay. I'm beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I, I for kinda, him, for the country— for Republicans, for just uh, the political process in general, I really believe that. Okay. I mean, there's a large part of me that says, "No, don't do it. Let's let's hand this baton off to for to the Ron health DeSantis. and longevity of America." I, I don't know. I mean, it's just like to to to. I mean, let's let's um let's either finish it or not. Let's get finality. Let Let, let's, get, let's get an answer on you know what really what what does America really believe about Donald Trump, the president. And America first, the political movement. And I don't know that we ever get clarity or an answer if Ron DeSantis or J.D. Vance or Josh Hawley pick up that mantle. But, uh-huh. but we have to have a fair election well, I mean, in order to know. We're going to have as fair as we possibly I can. Know. You know, I mean, there will be competing forces here. And uh, just keep your eyes open and your, and your ears open. Let's go to the phone. Here is Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, anybody really believes Joe Biden got 81 million votes? <laughs> now, the, the problem the Fed's got is they can't get on top of inflation. If they do, then the the service to our debt it goes through the roof. I mean, it, it'll take half, half of our uh, income going to the government, which would be around $2 trillion. So they're stuck in a hard, you know, rock in a hard place. If they were serious about inflation, inflation's running probably 17% by the the old standard, which they say is 9.1. Well, consumer or producer price inflation last month was 
9, 10.8, somewhere in there, I think. So that's that's going to extend over to next month. Um, we're having problems with the employment. They say it's so wonderful. Well, in, in February of, of 2020, we had 165 million people in the workforce. Right now, we have 158 million, and they keep talking about all these jobs they created. I know a lot of people retired, but you're starting to see people come out of retirement going back to work because of inflation. You know, all these $1,500 checks have been eaten up by inflation itself. So, like I said the other day, they were still putting $95 billion into the economy in March. So they're not serious about tackling inflation. They just want to change the definition. We're we're probably looking at another 1.6 negative growth because of inflation. And now that we've gotten the minimum wage up, uh, you're going to see even more inflation. It's, it's going to run steady probably around 8 9% the way they calculate it. But they'll figure a way out to, to BS the American people. And as far as who do we vote for, <laughs> these people in charge now have zero business experience. Joe, we got a hard break. Top of the hour. Thanks for the call. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number Tuesday morning talking politics. I want to get Robert Cahaley from Trafalgar to call in either Wednesday or Thursday. So stick with us in the eight o'clock hour. I talked to Robert a little bit yesterday, but Wednesday or Thursday in the eight o'clock hour. Oh, he's going to get up early. Yeah, day well, I mean that's early for a consultant or a pollster. He's not a pollster. Remember, yeah. he provides accurate information to people who are willing to pay. But a lot of his polling and work is done uh, around the Trump campaign or the Trump potential candidacy. Um, Trump was at turning points. I think DeSantis was a keynote speaker, but today he's speaking at the America First Summit. Um, over the past weekend at turning points, he won a straw poll against what a lot of people believe to be, uh, you know, the the guy next best to Trump in a Republican primary, Ron DeSantis. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is in Miami. Eben, good morning. How are you? Good morning. So do we have any inkling or understanding as to what Trump's leanings are? He's speaking today at the America First Summit, but you would expect that. I mean, he's a, a highly regarded figure in that political movement. But is this in any way, shape, or form indicating what he may or may not do? Well, the America First uh, Summit is uh, put on by the America First Policy Institute. That's basically all the people who worked in his White House. So uh, it's really not a big surprise that he would uh, show up at their summit. It is in Washington, so it's sort of a return to Washington for him. Uh, look, I, I don't think you're going to get an, an, an announcement just yet uh, from the president, or former president about whether or not he's running. I think he's concentrating on the midterms in, in that uh, he is trying to help uh, uh, his uh, selected candidates win primaries and then win the midterms uh, because uh, it's not enough for him to have Republicans win. It He needs to have his Republicans win in order to make his point especially if he's going to try to run for office again. He has to show that he's got, uh, uh, he still has the juice, so to speak. I, I, I think perhaps maybe we don't get a, a real announcement from him until next year. I think some of it has to do with campaign finance laws. When he announces he's a candidate, he, that kind of restricts the amount of or kind of fundraising he can do. 
Uh, and probably somehow, I don't uh, don't quote me on the law on that, but I'm going to guess that, that this all factors in as well to his uh, timing of, of announcing any decisions. But there always seems to be a, a little gleam in his eye when the subject comes up, and he says something like, we're going to have an announcement soon, and you're going to like it. Uh, or, or, you know, maybe I should run again or whatever. You know, so, some kind of coy remark with a little with a little twinkle in his face. So I, I you know, I, I think most people know where this is headed. And Edmund, I mean, the Republican process is at a standstill when it comes to presidential politics. I mean, Mike Pence was in town, in our town, and on our radio show last week. But but nobody knows what to do until Trump makes his announcement. Is that is that fair in Republican primary circles? I, I think that that's a very fair thing. I, I think most people know that he's, he still is the... Uh, uh, the the force majeure, if you will, or the, or the uh, um, what, how would you say it? It, it, it? That that he he's he's the big Kahuna, right? I mean, it's it, there's there really isn't much room for other people if he's in the if he's there, uh, and and for good reason. He's still an incredibly popular uh, person among conservatives and among Republicans. Uh, he, the the rallies he's been having. He had one Friday night this past Friday night in Arizona for. Uh, uh, for his uh, candidates that he's uh, backing there, uh, and uh, the the arena was packed. I mean, so th- th- this is. I think there are people who are curious to know if they can run based on whether or not he will run, and they're probably you know they're probably sitting there going, well, I, I want to hear what he has to say because if he's in, I'm out. But if he's out, then I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring. Uh, and then there have been names banded about uh, names like Mike Pence, names like Nikki Haley, names like Mike Pompeo. And then there's this uh, uh, insistence among so many in the political uh, pundit class, pollster class, uh, about uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who has just publicly said he's not really looking at the White House. He's in the middle of a re-election campaign himself right now uh, that uh, he'll be facing uh, – uh, a Democratic uh, uh, challenger in, in November, um, but uh, you know, I, there, there, there's this uh, I push to paint some kind of rift between DeSantis and Trump, uh, but both of them deny that there's any kind of rift happening. They they seem to still be on very good terms. Very well explained, Evan. Thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You got it. Take care. That's kind of an interesting take, and I think it's always um, it's good for us to get a perspective of someone not in conservative talk radio circles. Some of the majority of my opinion is influenced by you. Uh, you know what I mean? This sincerely, you basically tell me what you believe needs to happen next. There are a lot more of you than there are of me. Uh, there are a whole lot more listeners to this show than there is uh, the single host. But I mean, I, I've tried to take the last few days and um, there, there's kind of, um, I remember when I was in politics and we would discuss certain things. And I guess when we talk about the economy or, or Washington, I mean, Dale was talking about, you know, is it incompetence? Is it dereliction? Is it, uh, I think the word you got to add in there is it, um, is there a certain beholdenness to some of the political, um, people that there's a, I don't know if it's psychological in nature, but there's a, there's a dominant narrative and a dominant data theory. In other words, the dominant narrative is January 6th has really hurt Donald Trump. And, you know, Liz Cheney's on Meet the Press and Liz Cheney's on George Stephanopoulos and um, uh, Adam Kinzinger is on Jake Tapper. And that's the narrative. That's the dominant narrative of the mainstream media, that this is really hurting and harming Donald Trump. It's simply not. I mean, the, the dominant narrative 
disputes the dominant data or the dominant data disputes the dominant narrative in politics more than anything. I mean, I'll use this as an example. So the 11 and 18 car get caught cheating. Now, now Rev and I were talking during the break. How can a piece of tape, five inches by two inches, the, the width of a razor blade cause a car to go faster around a racetrack? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But, but the data says um, that NASCAR said don't do it. I mean, don't touch the car. The body of the car is to stay as is. You can tinker around with the suspension and the motor and all the Toyotas got their own program for GM's got their own programs. But NASCAR has said to every race team, don't mess and monkey around with that car. So that's data driven. But I mean, the data says um, that this car is to be the same. It's a cost saving mechanism. Um, all of a sudden, and, and in politics, more than anything, the narrative can become more important than the data. The data says we're in a recession. I mean, I'm convinced of that. Uh, the, the narrative by Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell, I mean, they, they, they'll have a dominant narrative theory that is disputing what the data says. And politics allows you to do that because people are gullible and people have these political predispositions that they want to trust and believe in. And when I look at the polling, and, I, and I'm trying to be sincere and not a Trumpster here, for a second, but when I look at the polling, and I did a good bit of work last night, um, and that's why I want Robert to come in, uh, because we're talking about Pence, we're talking about DeSantis, we're talking about all these other, but it all hinges upon what? What Donald Trump decides to do. I mean, we know that. Whether you like it or not, you can despise him. You can wish him banished from the face of the planet Earth, and I know people that wish that. But but nobody's going to make a move until Trump makes his. And I think, Eben, the most interesting things Eben said just now is, if Trump declares himself a candidate for president, then certain um, Federal Election Commission guidelines but begin, uh, he operates under those. In other words, he can't do but so much with Save America, so much with, with turning points. Um, the hundred and some odd million dollars in this political action committee uh, becomes very restricted as to what he can and cannot do. But I want to go back once again, forget the dominant narrative. I mean, the dominant narrative, you saw it Sunday morning. You see it every day on the news. You read about it. You hear about it, Twitter, Facebook, other than um, conservative talk radio. The dominant narrative is that Trump can't win. He's the only Republican that can lose. Um, okay, that's the dominant narrative. I fed into some of that narrative because I do worry about him being so polarizing. I think the, the Democrats today are not motivated. I mean, they're highly unmotivated to go to the poll and vote. Who motivates Democrats? Trump. Donald Trump. I mean, we know that. Donald Trump will motivate a Democrat to go to the poll to vote against what, what they perceive. Now, once again, they believe in the dominant narrative. The dominant narrative says Trump is dangerous. He's, he's, a, he's a threat to democracy. Why? Because every news agency in America has allowed Liz Cheney to say that as many times as she likes, unchecked, un, unconfronted. Um, you know, Adam Kinzinger is uh, he's basically auditioning. And the, the January 6th Select Committee has signed up for year two of their television contract. <laughs> and, uh, and Kinzinger is going to be a lead player because he wants a job at MSNBC or CNN, and he needs to make some money, and I'm sure they'll give him a chance to um, the dominant the, the dominant narrative will be Kinzinger is a part of this. But let's go to the data. You ready? Let's go to the dominant data. What does the data say? Real clear politics. In 2020, an average of national polls, and there were about 17 national polls that real clear politics validated as legitimate. And the RCP average 
had Joe Biden at 51.2%, Donald Trump at 44%. Joe Biden ends up with 51.4%. So they pretty well nailed that. I mean, they got him right. And once again, this is in the aggregate. This is a this is a survey of the the average of national polling. And I'm not talking about the the wake up Carolina poll. I mean, they wouldn't give that serious consideration. I'm talking about Trafalgar and NBC Wall Street Journal and and Quinnipiac and Monmouth and the Suffolk poll. I mean, th- these are polls that have historically been um, not not dead on, but but they've been somewhat a part of us trusting who's going to win or who's not. Here's where they goofed up. You ready? You know what the RCP average in 2020 for Trump was? 44 percentage points. You know what Trump ends up with? 46.9 percentage. So the poll got Biden about right. It missed Trump by 2.9 percentage points to the to the bottom. In other words, Trump outperformed the average RCP poll by 2.9 percentage points. Trump's final tote, uh, excuse me, final vote, uh, once again, underestimated by about three percentage points in 2020, was more votes than any, you know, second term candidate ever got. The increase of Trump from from, uh, 2016 to 2020 was more than anybody ever had. Forget cheating for a second. Forget the big lie. That's the dominant narrative. Forget uh, the big lie. Forget uh, voting integrity. See what the media is trying to convince you of. If you say something about voting integrity, then you're you're advocating for the big lie. And that's the dominant narrative. That's not the truth. I think you can believe that um that something happened in the 2020 election that can't be explained, but you're not buying the big lie. I mean, it, it, once again, the dominant narrative, the dominant data. But here's where it gets very interesting to me. In the last seven polls, excuse me, the last 10 polls that I've seen that I put any faith in, Trump wins seven. So Trump wins 70% of the polling today. Now, we're not having an election today, and a lot of things can happen. And he's got a chance to goof it up if he chooses. Uh, they got a chance to run more interference What's for Biden. What's that questioning? Is it uh, if the election were held today? If the election were held for? today between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I mean, it's not Joe okay. Biden. It's not Donald Trump and Gavin Newsom. It's not Donald Trump and uh, uh, AOC. It's Donald Trump and Joe Biden in a rematch. Um, Trump's at 44.5%. Biden's at 42.5. Now, let's take 2020 as an example. So in 2020, he outperformed the the average of polling by 2.9 percentage points. If he's at 45.5, excuse me, 44.5 today, he's at 47. And he's got to run. I mean, he's got to run. I mean, you know, unless something crazy happens. I mean, unless we, we find out, you know, that, that Trump's um, has a, a medical issue or he's in cognitive decline. We talked a little bit yesterday about him being 78. And, and I've been one to say, um, as respectfully as I can, that I think we're better off passing the baton to someone other than Trump. And DeSantis is my choice. I mean, I'm not a big fan. I don't think there's a, a way in Hades for Mike Pence to win the nomination. I think Mike Pence is a solid man. I think Mike Pence is a good guy. I think Mike Pence served the president well. I think Mike Pence was a loyal um, vice president and I think he did the right thing on January 6th. I understand a lot of you Trump folk don't believe that. I do. I think he was a loyal vice president who carried the president's water uh, in a way that probably made him very uncomfortable the majority of his political existence in Washington. But on that day, on that fateful day in January, I think Pence did what he was forced to do. I don't think he had a good out. And, and that kind of guy is not going to do that kind of thing. But, but here's the point. And here's why I don't believe we can pass the baton. 
Now, now, if Trump had no chance to win, I think the majority of us would be crazy to suggest strongly. I don't care how much adoration and respect, Dan, and resolve you have for Trump. I mean, if, if the numbers clearly showed he's eight or nine down in a, in a matchup with Joe Biden or with a Gavin Newsom or with a Kamala Harris, but he's not. I mean, he's simply not. I mean, he still has a, a an enormous uh, universe of supporters, and I think he's gotten more today than he had even in 2020 because we passed, you know, uh, the Democrat beat, uh, whether you agree with the outcome of the election or not, you know, Biden is the, is the president. He doesn't know it, but he is. Um, so, so I just think there are, as I studied and researched over the weekend and try to go through some of these polling, and that's why I want to get Robert to come on tomorrow or Thursday and kind of revisit this. If you think about it, I mean, to me personally, I, 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 you know, I'm not a pollster. I'm not a, um, I'm not a consultant. I'm not an advisor. I don't work for a campaign. But if it's not Trump, it's got to be DeSantis. I mean, there, there is no way we can allow, with all due respect, and I mean this sincerely, as respectfully as I as I can, we can't let the party nominate Mike Pence. We can't let the party nominate Nikki Haley. We can't let the party nominate Larry Hogan. We can't let the party nominate anybody other than. Somebody who has proved that they are an America First Republican. I mean, that's just my humble opinion. Now, now others disagree. I mean, I've got friends of mine who say, no, I mean, it's time for a Nikki Haley. It's time for a kind of a hybrid. Somebody who gets and understands the America First movement, but also understands the establishment orthodoxies and why they're important to be integrated and intertwined. Into the, no, I mean, I, I just, I don't buy that. I mean, I, I just think if, if the America First movement won the battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party, then damn it, an America First Republican needs to be its nominee. It doesn't need to be half pregnant. The party's not half pregnant. I mean, there was a battle and there was a confrontation and America First won that. Republican establishment hierarchy tried everything they could to stop Trump from getting nominated. They tried to, I mean, they, they joined forces with the Democrats to stop him from being successful. That's who you're dealing with. And Haley has a certain beholdenness. There we go with that word again to those people. Pence has a certain beholdenness. Why? Because they're trying to look for an alternative other than Trump. And they'll look to Pence. They'll look to Haley. That They'll look to a lot of other candidates. And I just think if it's not Trump, it's got to be somebody who is absolutely committed to the America First agenda, this America First iteration of the Republican Party. And the only person to me that has shown a willingness to go there is Ron DeSantis. So if it's not Trump, to personally, and, and I'll do everything I can to convince you of this, it's got to be DeSantis. We, we can't go further down that sliding scale and get someone who may or may not be as committed uh, is 70, 30, 80, 20, 75, 25, 65, 35. I, I'm not interested in that. I mean, I think the party's base has spoken loudly and clearly. And once again, the theory is, or excuse me, the narrative, the dominant narrative is those people, uh, there's not enough of them to win elections. I, I don't buy that, Rev. I just don't. For every establishment Republican that the, the party loses, and I'm talking about uh, in Manhattan, in, in some of the, um, we talk about white college educated females, you know, they're hemorrhaging support. I mean, the white college educated female, for whatever reason, doesn't want any part of MAGA. And that's their words, not mine. They're a little bit more um, in tune to America first, but they're, they're, they're kind of offended by MAGA. That's why the Democrats use MAGA, because MAGA has a negative connotation, and white educated female voters just don't want to be associated with that. But for every one of those we lose, I think we pick up another working class voter. 
whether it's Hispanic, whether it's black, whether it's someone in the Rust Belt that has historically voted for the Democrat. I just think it's a, it's kind of a risk reward. And I think Trump, I think Trump has to see this through. Once again, if he were, yeah, but if I read the data and it clearly showed me or, or, or led me to believe there's no chance he can win, then I think the majority of us have to accept uh, it was a hell of a run, but it's over. But the data shows me that that's not the case. One of the most compelling numbers to me, and this has been confirmed by a couple of other surveys, the number of people who believe Donald Trump is largely to blame for the events of January 6th, pre-January 6th committee, was 62. That doesn't surprise me. That's just about two in every three. And I think the word largely is interesting. He was largely responsible, not solely, not, not, not totally, but largely responsible. About two in three voters said that, 62. What is that number today? It's 58. So that is, and this is where Gingrich gets it, I think, uh, better than anybody does. The emotion and energy is not a loyalty. And I'm tired of cult. And I'm tired of conspiracy theorists. And I'm tired of fringe. It's not fringe. It's not cult. It's not conspiracy theorist. It is a dedication, no question about it. But I'm, I'm beginning to believe that the dedication is less about Donald Trump and more about the Republican and the Democrat establishment. That the elites in Washington who have done everything in their power to create this dominant narrative that doesn't jihad with the dominant data. The dominant data shows that Donald Trump is still the most likely person to be elected president of the United States in 2024. Find somebody in the media that confirms that. Find somebody in the media that, that will even engage in a debate about that. Once again, you can't vote on the American presidency here, but you can in England. Guess who is the odds-on favorite today? Donald Trump. He's the odds-on favorite to be president of the United States despite everything that has been done to impugn his integrity, to but, but damage the media his is, candidacy. They are busy interviewing Liz Cheney well, and it's the dominant and, narrative. I mean, they, they, right. they, they're trying to overwhelm the dominant data with this dominant narrative. they've got a mission. Sure. Absolutely. they make sure he doesn't become and, president And I again. think if DeSantis runs, it looks like we backed off. It looks like we gave in. It looks like we accepted some of this dominant narrative as, okay, I can't win, so let's find the next best guy. And I think everybody listening to my voice believes, and I'm talking about everybody that believes in, in Trumpism or America first. I think we all agree that if not Trump, then DeSantis. I mean, I can't speak for everybody, and that's probably painted with too broad a brush. The overwhelming majority of Trump supporters are not going to be happy with Pence. They're not going to be happy with Haley. They're, they're not going to be happy with anybody except maybe Ron DeSantis. And once again, I'm for DeSantis if the dominant data says Trump can't win. It simply does not say that. In fact, it probably implies that his gives us the best chance to win moving forward. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Got no idea what that was. <laughs> was, that a, was that a malfunction of the, um, of the audio? I think that was on purpose. I think. Uh, what was that? I think Mike put put in some new bumper There's music. A new bumper. What is it? Uh, Bulls on Parade by Rage Against the Machine. Okay, good deal. Rage <laughs> Against the Machine with Tom Morello, talking about way out there. Yeah, that that um, <laughs> politically they are way way out there. Let's go to the phone. Here's uh, Carl in the PD. Good morning, Carl. Hey, what's going on? Hey, Carl. Ken, I appreciate you letting me call call you back from yesterday because you kind of raked me over the coals, making everybody think that I, I thought that um, Joe Biden was coherent two years ago. But let me ask you this. All right, here's a, 
because you brought it back to race cars. Here's a race car question for you. All right. So in 2020, how right, symbolically, do you think that Joe Biden was running on zero flat tires? One, two, three, or four flat tires if he was a race car. That's a good analogy. He's probably running. Um, Not today, then. Okay, I, I got your question. At the beginning of the campaign or when? Give me, a, give me a time. Before the election. Before the election. So during the campaign. He's got two flat tires during the campaign. Okay, so, so you thought he had two flat tires. Dave Baker, how many, how many tires would you have given Joe, Joe Biden? I'd say uh, before, the, before the election. I'd say yeah. three flat tires. Okay. Okay. Now, I thought he had four flat tires before the election. <laughs> Somehow I knew that was going to be your answer. <laughs> because before the election, Donald Trump called him Sleepy Joe. And, and I called him, call him two things. I called him Slow Joe, and I called him Mr. Magoo. Because you, you remember Mr. Magoo, Ken? I do. Yeah, because he would start off the the cartoon and everything was great in the world. By the end of the, the cartoon, everything was a disaster and everything was up in flames. And he was the same Mr. Magoo. He was no different. And I, and I still say that he is no different today than he was then. He was four flat tires two years ago, and he's four flat tires now. Only difference is he's he's been put out on the track that's too tough to tame and not really do a race, but, you know, he's been put out there. And, you know, he's not gotten any worse, but you put him out there, those tires have worn down some more, and you, you see that the transmission's no good, and you've had to push it around the, the track most of the time. Oh, Biden-Bama, that was before the election. Well, let me ask you this, Carl. I won't interrupt you for a second. Let me ask you this. Um when do you think it really began? I mean, in retrospect, when he was when he was Obama's vice president, when when was a moment in time that we began to suspect this guy's losing his faculties? Do you remember? I mean, I don't want to say what day and what time, but during what period of time as he served former President Obama, did did you begin suspecting that man, this guy's getting old and and out of touch? Or was it during the interim? Or was it after he left office and and when when Trump was the president? No, he, he. It was a running joke. Obama said that if it, if if it's anybody in Washington who could mess things up, it's Joe Biden. But you would agree so that he's Obama's, got a. But you would agree that the majority of his political life. I mean, we've always felt. I mean, until recently, we thought Joe was a klutz and a dunce and not real smart. But we never thought he was in cognitive decline. Is that fair? I mean, even back in the eighties. I mean, Britt Hume was asked by Joe Biden. Joe, why don't you, I mean, Britt, why don't you ever include me in your articles? He said, because you're a blowhard. Nobody takes you serious. Um, that, that's being a bit of a dunce. But, but there's a difference in being a dunce and not very smart and, and losing your faculties. I can remember when he had clarity, but it wasn't two years ago. Because two years ago, was oh, he was talking about Biden. This is the Biden bomber world and better calf care and uh, in 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 a, International Supper the Pressure, Super Thursday. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I ran, and he was in Iowa. And, um, you know, he didn't have any, cam- he didn't have any campaign rallies. He didn't, and, and he, he had a nerve today to talk about um, he's still got a full schedule. You can go on whitehouse.gov to see what his schedule is. He doesn't do anything from one day to the next. And he, so he didn't have any campaign rallies two years ago. He doesn't do anything two years later. 
So like I said, I still say he's not any worse than he was. Now, we're worse. We're way worse. And you're trying to, you know, you, you are taking your pain and saying, you know, he's just bad. And you're going to have um, uh, Scott Kaufman come up, and he's going to say something like, you know, um, the, the right-wing press and these polls have really aged, um, aged oh, uh, Joe Biden in these past few years. This has been hard on him because of, of the, the press and these polls. And, he's the, and Joe Biden is the same Mr. Magoo that he was two years ago, and, Joe, and Scott Kaufman is Magoo Jr. because he's got, he's got uh, you know, cognitive dissonance that he can't believe what's really going on because he doesn't want to, want to think it's true. Thank you, Carl. Well, I'm Pre- glad to hear that you are, you know, you are coming to your senses and welcome home because we're going, we're going to do this because Donald Trump had four good tires. He was, he's old as he is. He had four good tires two years ago. He got four good tires a day, and we're going to do this. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six one. As they pointed out from the White House podium over the weekend, uh, Joe Biden did make a happy plate this weekend. Yeah, I think to compare Scott's. Um, state of cognitive uh, assessment to, to Biden's is unfair. I mean, Scott's a, a guy much less conservative than I, um, but but I think I think you know Biden is obviously a guy in disarray. Uh, Dr. Kaufman is not. He's a guy the majority of you disagree with, but but he's certainly not someone who doesn't have his faculties and doesn't have a clarity of understanding as to what he believes and why he believes that. Now you know we would argue what is fair. Uh, you know the fair comes to town in October is what my father always said. Hey, 843-661937 is the number. I stand by my comments. Carl and I have a fundamental disagreement. I mean, you're kind of between us two here. Um, it's kind of interesting. If, if I had enough time and enough resources, I'd go back and try to find Biden in 2008, Biden in nine, Biden in 10, Biden in 11, Biden in 12, uh, because somebody close to Joe, I mean, you know this, guys, we all have family members that get old. I mean, my grandfather got real old, and when he would park his truck, we'd go all move our trucks away from wherever it was he parked. I mean, we loved him dearly, but we accepted some of his frailty. We accepted some of him getting old and, um, and the danger that goes along with that. It would be very interesting uh, if someone could do that, can compile, you know, when did Biden appear to really begin to fall off the cliff? When it came? I'm not talking about being a dunce. I mean, I think he's always been a dunce. I mean, he's always been a blowhard. He's always been a um, kind of a political prostitute. I'm talking about when did when was it pretty out? When did someone who's been around Joe Biden all their lives say, what's wrong with Joe? I mean, what's wrong with Joe? I mean, we've all bumped into friends of ours who are elderly and, and we'll leave there and get in our car with our wife or husband and say, hey, that that's, I mean, something's wrong. You know, well, he's 84, man. He's 82. He's 83. He's 79. Uh, we, we always kind of, um, that's where we, he's an old man. He's an old, she's an old woman. I mean, it. At some point in time, you begin to diminish. You just do. All of us do. Some do it later. Some do it better. Some do it earlier and do it worse. But we all diminish at some point in time if you live long enough. Um, now, now, my father and mother died at 63, so I didn't see them, you know, struggle with those sorts of issues. But if you've, if you've got a parent in your 80s or in their 80s, odds are, I didn't say every single parent, but odds are you've seen a decline and a bit of their 
uh, diminishing faculties or diminishing abilities. I remember we talked back during the campaign about, you know, it's cruel what they're doing to him as as a, a family member. Why would you put him out there and in this condition and put him up to this task? And, of course, now we know what happens yeah. when you do that. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze is next. Hey, Breeze. Guys, guess what I was say, kid? It's not an accident. They do it. They do it all along. But Biden is the perfect tool for what they're doing. The Democrat communists and their uh, friends in the media and, and these huge globalist corporations, they said, let's get this guy in with dementia. He'll do what we tell him to do. And then anything that goes wrong, we can blame it on him. He'll be dead in a couple of years. We can put it and so forth and so on. So none of this is an accident. And I'll tell you another thing, too. The big, uh, that, it was a cover-up. It was a cover-up. They all knew he was. They had it. But here's another cover-up that's getting ready to happen. And I'm convinced of it. The, the side effects of these vaccines, if they ever expose the truth of how many people have been sick, what it has done to our children, these vaccines and these pharmaceutical companies made billions, and they funneled all that money back to the people that supported them in politics, and that's why you see so much of this. So that's going to be a huge cover-up. How dangerous are these vaccines and were they? And who ever heard of that going on? And, of course, you can't sue them, right? So that's one thing. And the next thing, I was, remember last week when I was told about Republicans need to court the Spanish vote, the Latino vote? And here they are again, got caught with their holding their puds because George Soros has now bought a bunch of Spanish-speaking radio stations. Why do you think George Soros bought Spanish-speaking radio stations? You think he, won't, uh, think he has an affinity for Latino music? Or do you think he's going to try to dag on uh, woo them over to vote Democrat? And where are the Republicans? Holding their dag on putt again. What a bunch of morons. I can only assume they're doing it on purpose, too. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Yeah, Breeze and I were texting yesterday. That is indeed the truth. George Soros has purchased some um, Spanish-speaking radio stations. And and like Breeze says, I don't think he's a big fan of, I mean, I don't know anything about him being a big fan of Latino music. Um, it's outreach. I mean, it's voter outreach. You're dealing with people who play for keeps. I mean, you just are. I mean, you're dealing for people who will win at any cost. And until the Republicans embrace that and understand that and, and just kind of deal from that perspective, we're going to continue to, I, <laughs> as Breeze says, get your butt in it to you. Uh, he's another, another uh, pleasantry there. <laughs> hey, the vaccine. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, it's established. It's fairly well documented now that the vaccine does not stop infection, did not stop infection. It does not stop you from carrying the virus. It never has stopped you from carrying the virus. It didn't stop you from spreading the virus. It's never stopped anybody from spreading the virus. So if a vaccine doesn't stop you from getting infected, doesn't stop you from carrying the virus, doesn't stop you from infecting others, what is it? Here's a fair question. You ready? And I think this is a very appropriate question. Would we be better off today in America? had there never been a vaccine. I mean, I really believe that is a legitimate debate to have. Now, now uh, how dare you say that? That's crazy. I mean, that's uber. Well, let me read Dr. Burke's uh, book. I mean, she basically admits. I don't know if she meant to admit it, but if you read between the lines, she admits that they intentionally misled the public. And it was in the name of public safety and, you know, I mean, stopping people from freaking out and being so afraid they overstated the effectiveness or efficacy of the vaccine. Um 
intentionally. So, so once again, how much money was made, who's beholden to whom, when, when we, we can clearly say now, but without a doubt, I mean, the science is indisputable, that the, the vaccine, not, not on every front, not on every occasion, but the vaccine by and large didn't stop infection. I mean, there are multiple accounts of Biden saying, get the vaccine, you won't become infected. Get the vaccine, you won't be a carrier. Get the, va- the only leg they stand on now is the vaccine kept you out of the hospital. But now we're finding out a lot of, I mean, I don't want to go into detail because I would uh, be rumor milling, but there's a, um, there's a rumor going around that a, a very famous person who recently passed away, passed away as a result of being vaccinated. Now, none of this is talked about, but, but we know the vaccine didn't stop infection because people who have been in vac- vaccinated, boosted, vaccinated, boosted, they're still getting infected. They're still carrying the virus. They're still transmitting or spreading the virus. What is it if it's not a vaccine? I mean, seriously, I mean, define vaccine to me. And if the vaccine doesn't do any of that, how in the world are we still calling it a vaccine? Because it fits into that box called emergency declarations, and there's certain guidelines and stipulations. Anyway, it's 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 an absurd. We're we're going to dedicate a good bit more time to kind of a post mortem on the the COVID era of American politics. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. My man has been working the bumper music. Some like it, some don't like it. Freehold. Just so you know, a few texts saying, "Hey, I love it." A couple of others, I don't care much at all for it. Um, keep working it, man. Just keep um keep us new and fresh. There you go. There you keep go. Keep us guessing. Keep us guessing new and fresh. Hey, if you're standing still, you're backing up. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. Hey, morning, guys. Also rumored that that vaccines also gave a lot of young athletes heart attacks too. But I'm not a doctor, so I can't clarify that. Um, did you guys catch Tucker when he was talking about all the? Um, pills and stuff that they're forcing kids to take. I know a lot of my friends took a lot of that, those Ritalin and Adderall and all that. Um, and I was wondering what you guys' thoughts on that. Do you guys think that's the problem? Why we have a bunch of morons running around today? Like you just got in your system, changed your brain a little bit, and you just kept breathing stupid? I, I was curious about that. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. I mean, we, we're, we're a country that believes in medicating. I mean, we really do. Um, if there's a problem in your life, there's a pill to make that problem go away. Now, it's not your fault that you're feeling a certain way. It's not your fault that your 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 health is a certain way. Uh, it's, it's somebody, and there's a, there's a, I don't know, a drug company somewhere willing to take your money and give you a pill. I mean, is your right index finger hurt? Then take this pill. It's specifically for the right index finger. Does your left pinky finger hurt? Well, here's another medicine that we created specifically for your left pinky finger. Uh, Rev was talking during the break, and I've read some of this. I mean, I can't corroborate it, but th- there are reports of a number of younger people dying mysteriously. A farm, uh, and the percentage is much larger than normal, um, 40 and younger. And the majority of these people that are dying have been vaccinated. Now, now, once again, you're not reading much about it. You're not seeing much about it because it doesn't fit this dominant narrative that the vaccine works. I mean, guys, it took a, it took a decade. Historically, over in, in the history of American medicine, it takes about a decade to properly vet, approve, and, and disperse a vaccine. We did it in less than a year. And we, we just said, well, I mean, we're wonderful. Look at how great we are. 
Look at the brilliant minds in medicine and biology and chemistry and science. I mean, look at what we've done. And now we found out that what we thought we did is not remotely close to what we actually did because the vaccine, once again, does not stop infection. It does not stop spread. And it does not stop um, you from being a carrier. So what is it? Especially if it is indeed a contributor to younger people having certain conditions. I mean, I'm not, once again, I can't corroborate that. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to suggest to get vaccinated or not. I never have. But for those who said I was reckless and careless and irresponsible by not encouraging people to go get vaccinated, let's talk now. I mean, let's look at the data now. The Wall Street Journal did a big expose two weeks ago at how misleading the CDC was. Dr. Burks admits that we intentionally misled people to try and encourage them to take the vaccination. That may or may not have worked. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. We'll go there. I want to come back and talk a little bit more about the vaccination. Um, we were told the vaccination was highly effective. You were told that. I was told that, as Rev said during the break. And I think at the end of the last segment, people lost their jobs. Um, they lost their careers. Uh, they, they were displaced from society in discharged certain ways. Discharged from the military. Shape, there you go. Discharged from the American military because we were told that the vaccine was highly effective and we had a communal obligation to become vaccinated. Well, now this highly effective vaccination, we know for sure, does not stop you from getting infected. It does not stop you from carrying the virus and it does not stop you from spreading the virus. So what is the definition of highly effective? I mean, we changed the definition of recession. We've changed the definition of woman. Are we changing the definition of highly or effective uh, right before our very eyes? Words have to mean something. I mean, the dominant narrative can't completely dismiss or discount the dominant data. The data clearly shows today. I mean, we've got Biden and Fauci. When I think of vaccines, I think of Biden, Burks, and Fauci. We've got both of those people on the record saying that if you get vaccinated, you will not get the virus. We know that's not the truth today. So you've got a highly effective vaccine, so we were told, that doesn't stop you from getting infection, does not stop you from being a carrier, and does not stop you from spreading it. Here's the question. You ready? And nobody will ever own up to this. I have no regrets for what I did and what I said during the, um, I mean, I didn't get everything right, didn't get everything wrong. But, but I was uh, encouraged, strongly encouraged by people who listen to this show who don't agree with a lot of what I say, that I was being irresponsible and a bit dangerous in, in questioning whether someone should, should go get vaccinated or not. Um, if you're someone out there in the medical community or not who cares an opinion, who has an opinion that carries some weight, in other words, you've got an opinion and people listen to what you say and you told people to go get vaccinated, do you regret it? Is there any regret? Is there any remorse? Is there any, or are you bothered at all by believing hook, line, and sinker what the CDC and WHO said? I'm thinking about one individual in particular. I'm going to chastise me morning after morning via text. He's a physician. I mean, he's medically trained. And he said, I had a responsibility because we have an audience at a forum and a medium of which to communicate with our listeners. He said that I was derelict and irresponsible for not encouraging you, our listeners, to go get vaccinated because the vaccine works. He knows the science and I don't. Does that person regret encouraging people to go get vaccinated? Because once again, this isn't in the media, but but and I can't corroborate it, so I can't substantiate it. So I won't, you know, say I know this to be true. 
but you said you've heard uh, example after example oh, I've after read example. Many stories. I mean, there 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 are a multitude of stories uh, out there. Kind of unexplainable medical situations and deaths with young people. With young people, and, otherwise and the, healthy. And the majority of those people have been vaccinated. Once again, I don't know that the vaccine contributed or not to that. Nobody will ever study that, I doubt, because it doesn't fit, once again, but, but I bet uh, the narrative. You, you won't have anybody take you up on your offer because they'd still believe it. I mean, every time you see, and typically it's it's a left-leaning individual, okay, but and and, and there's people announcing every day that they've, they've got a, a positive test. I mean, the president's the perfect example, but then follows that up with the next line in the talking points that says, Thank goodness I was vaccinated and boosted. Otherwise, this would have been much worse. But that, that's and what that's, they, what, that's, that's what that's what we've reduced the debate to. The debate, and that no, may be true. By well, the way, it, I'm, I'm not be. disputing that. And, and it also could be true that people are dying from the vaccine. That's right. I mean, you know, but but to say that the reason we wanted, I mean, to begin with, and, and guys, this is not a radio show host. The president of the United States says that if you get the vaccination, you're not going to get COVID. The director of NIA, NIH, National Institute of Health says if you get the vaccination, I mean, we can pull clip after clip after clip of Fauci saying this. So all of a sudden, the, the debate is not whether or not the vaccine stops you from getting infected. We know that's not true. It's not whether or not you become a carrier. We know that's not true. It's not whether you can spread it or not. We know that's true. The, the debate has been reduced to does it keep you out of the hospital or not? I mean, in essence, the vaccine that people lost their careers, lost their livelihoods, were, were basically kicked out of the American military because once again, they, they just didn't trust the science. They didn't trust the experts. The experts lied to you. The science was very questionable, but we weren't allowed to question, or we chose to not question. See, if we weren't allowed to question, that's one thing. But not choosing to question is another. And that goes back to this theory I have about how conditioned to conform we've become. And if Fauci, Burks, and Biden say it, it must be true. And it's just it's just mind-boggling to me how many Americans just for whatever reason, believe what these people say because these people are in positions of authority and responsibility, and they wouldn't tell me. Um, and I think the word we, we still go back to this morning, beholden. Who is Fauci beholden to? Who is the medical, excuse me, the public health experts beholden to? How much money has Pfizer paid in, in, you know, in payments to scientists and, and biologists and chemists who work at the, the CDC or the WHO. Yeah, thanks I mean, to Rand Paul, we learned there are some kickbacks. Sure. Commissions. I mean, the people that work for the government on your payroll, not, not I mean, they're, they're on your payroll. I mean, you're the taxpayer. They work for the government. You pay their salary. They're also getting um, kickbacks and, and side payments from uh, pharmaceutical companies that they do R&D work for. It's just, once again, the debate is now about whether or not the vaccine keeps you out of the hospital. And if you're someone out there who in the early days of this pandemic strongly encouraged people to go get vaccinated and accused others of being irresponsible, reckless, careless, dangerous. I mean, there were a few people that said it's dangerous to not tell people to go get vaccinated. Um, there, there's a fair debate now. Has the vaccine killed anybody? And does the vaccine keep you out of the hospital? We know the answers to the others. It doesn't stop you from getting infected. It doesn't stop you from being a carrier. And it doesn't stop you from spreading it around to other people. 843, how many times did we hear this? Go get vaccinated because grandmother, you know, and grandfather. Well, I mean, there's nothing to that anymore. There is no truth to that science. There was never any truth to that science. But we did 10 years worth of work in less than a year, and we trusted it. Or some of you did. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. 
Hey, I, I, great show as always, Ken. Uh, I think you got a very valid point there. But uh, going back, back to that just a little bit, I think uh, uh, Breeze's analysis was right on the money uh, as far as it goes. And uh, but uh, this this whole thing about inoculation, I, what concerns me is the way we frivolously and without discipline, without any kind of order, we interchange two cards: faith. And science. Science is uh, reproducible results, and uh, based on the data and uh, using the scientific method. Uh, but uh, faith is like is when you are uh, saying, "Well, this will work," even though the pill is only a tic tac that's been pa- uh, uh, painted a different color. It doesn't really do anything for you. It it might have a placebo effect if you have enough faith in it, but uh, otherwise it's not going to work. I know that uh, Dr. Kaufman may or may not appear on the show, but I I don't think – I think he's he's a very bright man, and I enjoy uh, listening to him and listening to his views. What amazes me is his faith in his uh, set of beliefs of, about the Democrat Party and the uh, uh, the way social the social uh, regimen should be set up for society. That uh, it, it just doesn't work. But he has uh, extreme faith in that, and I guess that's where you get the dissonance in there. And he's on the great river of denial. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. You know, I think it's one thing to to attack one's opinion. I mean, I think in the world of talk radio, we're entitled to attack uh, others' opinions. I mean, I think we ask for that. When Mike calls into the show, I think Mike accepts some responsibility. Somebody may disagree with him, and they may be aggressive. I think when Dr. Kaufman, this is why I applaud Dr. Kaufman. When Dr. Kaufman comes on the show, and they're not here today, Dr. Bolton or Kaufman, I think they're getting ready for school. School's about to start back. But, um... But, but Dr. Coppin steps into hostile territory. I mean, he knows when he comes on this radio show, the majority of you take exception with about everything he says. But I have a great deal of respect in his opinion. Now, once again, I disagree with his opinion, but I find it to be a very thoughtful, smart, methodical, genuine, sincere, and believing to be honest man. Now, I say believing to be honest because I believe I'm honest. But I have certain strong-held opinions that may be true or not. I honestly hold those opinions, but all of those opinions probably aren't right. That make me a dishonest man, right? I mean, if I honestly believe in this, and this is proven to be untrue, I'm not a dishonest man. I honestly believed it to be true. Um, and and I think when we when we start attacking someone's character, that that that's when it's uh, to, to me it's it, it's something that is unnecessary. And doesn't add anything to the debate. Now, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but 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 the one thing that I will say about Dr. Kaufman, because I've witnessed this firsthand, um, I think somebody made an accusation recently that he couldn't allow students in his class to be treated the same who didn't hold a political opinion similar to his. And I've witnessed that that's just not the case. That's simply not the case. Um, I think Dr. Kaufman will admit, I think he's admitted this to our listeners um, his political philosophy is left of center, but he's a college professor who stands in front of a universe of students and allows them to make 
um, statements, comments, and and those statements and comments are treated. Uh, I don't say one and the same, but they're treated equally. And uh, and that's that's I guess that's what bothers me a little about when we insinuate that he can't be a good professor because he's liberal. I mean, that, I just I don't buy that. I mean, I think conservatives can be good professors. I think liberals can be good professors. I think I think you got to be a smart man and an informed man. And I think it's obvious he's a student of history. You know, he recounts history, understands history, has a grasp of history. His understanding, excuse me, his um, deciphering of history may be a little bit different than I'd. And that's fine. But I, mean, I think it adds, you know, I think it adds an element to the show. Because I have a lot of people who say, why do you let that liberal professor on your show? Because I think it, 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 it helps all of us. It makes us better. It makes the debate more interesting when we allow someone as a guest, not, not someone running for Congress, not someone running for uh, the U.S. Senate, but we allow someone to come on as a guest to express an alternate point of view. You know, someone asked me last week, you took it easy on Kaufman. I don't think I take it easy on Kaufman. We disagree. He knows we disagree. I know we disagree. But he's not here as anything other than a guest. He's not here as someone asking for your vote. If he's asking for your vote, we got to dig around and find out what he's about, where he comes from. Why does he believe these things? Uh, why doesn't he believe in these other things? But when he's a guest as a college professor on a conservative radio show, I think it, it offers up an example to me that he's willing to engage an audience of people that he knows has a different set of, of views or political persuasions or opinions. And I applaud him. And I mean this sincerely. I applaud him for coming on this show time after time after time after time and accepting the alternate point of view, disagreeing at times, pretty passionately at other times. But but to suggest that he can't be a fair arbiter, he can't be an honest broker, I, I just think that's, I mean, it's unfounded to begin with. And I think it's, it's absolutely and totally unfair because, once again, um, I think I have a good understanding of Dr. Coppin. Uh, we became friends at the gym, and out of that friendship came a kind of a yin and yang. You know, he sees the world this way. I see the world that way. He invited me to his classroom. I went and watched him in action. I watched him profess to students. I watched him teach students about what he believes, excuse me, about what, what history says. But I never saw him, you know, pontificate upon what he believed. Here's what history is. Um, let's talk about this historical event in its real context. Um, not in a liberal, not as the New York Times would report, this historical event, not as the, the Wall Street Journal, not as Breitbart or redstate.com would, but here are the historical facts. Let's chew on those together. And I think when he comes on the show, he and Dr. Bolt both, they offer an historical analysis that I think is incredibly value and, and helps all of us work through whatever issues we're trying uh, to work through. Let's go to the phone. Here's Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, guys. I hope everyone's having a great day so far. Hey, Charles, how are you? Um, yeah, I'm okay, thank you. you. You know my thoughts on the vaccine. I've shared them with you. Uh, I believe that a number of my issues that I've had since I got the vaccine, uh, I can blame totally on the vaccine. I made a comment to my doctor the last time I saw him, and I will not mention his name. Now, I said, I'll bet there's probably 20,000 people in this country that have died as a result of taking that damn vaccine. And his response to me was, you've probably underestimated that number. Um, last Friday, a good friend of mine, 42 years old in Columbia, dropped dead a couple of days after receiving a booster. So um, 
That's all I'm going to say. And by the way, all of us got COVID, whether we got the vaccine or not. So that's my two cents. That's a lot. Thank you, Charles. Glad you're doing better. Sound better, and I'm glad you're you're doing much better. You know, I, I think we argued, or we debated. We didn't argue about it. We debated, um, I think some moron on the radio said one morning, there's two kinds of people in the world, those that have had COVID and those that will get COVID. Uh, I think that's where we've kind of ended up. But look at what we did, guys. Look at what we normalized. I mean, we shut people's businesses down. We stopped allowing people to go to lakes and rivers and beaches. I mean, for God's sake, we, we lost our flipping minds. And the reason I think we, we, we lost our minds is how willing we have become. I think it was Joe the other week, and I'll get this wrong when I try to repeat this, but I've thought a lot of it. I've read it before, but Joe reminded me, um, you know, hard men. No, what is it? Weak men make hard times. Hard men, hard times make hard men. It's kind of a, um, there's an evolution there. I'll goof it up, but somebody can quote it better than I can or send me something in writing so I can read. But but, but the, the, the analysis is, or the interpretation is that hard men, hard women, committed men, committed women are not going to be easily told what to do. You know, the, the human spirit is designed to, to basically do what it wants to do. Dave Baker would rather do what he wants to do than what I ask him to do. I mean, that's just human nature in general. But but we have been conditioned to conform to a point where um, we just kind of blindly, loyally follow whatever expert says we should do. Or And I think Dave makes a very interesting point. How many men and women in the armed services were decommissioned because they refused to get vaccinated? Charles just said that his physician, and I don't want to call names either, I've had people tell me that. I mean, I've, I've had people in the medical field that are a bit hesitant and reluctant to believe what some of these public health officials said. Um, I'll say, man, there's no telling how many people died because of the vaccine. And they'll say off the record, you're right. I mean, there, there is no telling how many. The, the point I'm trying to make, here's what we know today. We don't know how many people have died because of the vaccine. We don't know how many lives the vaccine saved. We don't know how many people would have gone to the hospital that didn't because they were vaccinated. But we were told by the people in charge that the vaccine was going to stop infection. We found out later it did not. We were told by the the experts that the vaccine was going to stop the spread. It did not. We were told the vaccine was going to um, stop you from being a carrier. Remember, get vaccinated so you can go see grandmother because grandmother, she's 80 years old. She doesn't need to get the virus. It'll kill her. It'll cause her all kind of medical complications. We know for a fact that none of that was true. Charles just admitted he doesn't know how many people died because of the vaccine. There is a football player, a young man who recently passed away. I've heard from multiple sources that the vaccine had something to do with it. I can't corroborate that. I can't prove that. I don't have any idea if that's the truth or not. I've heard um, 20, 25, maybe 30 anecdotal examples of family members who believe the reason that person passed away is the vaccine. They don't know that to be true. I don't know that to be true. But the irresponsible, I mean, the, the people that were most irresponsible since all of this began were those who were so convinced they knew more than us. And I'm thinking about one physician in particular, and I think he's a fine man. I mean, I really believe he's a good, decent, moral man. But he basically every morning, I sure read the text. I mean, he lectured me, and he lectured me, and he called me the most dangerous man in the PD because you've got this audience, and you're, you're indirectly encouraging them to not be, uh, to be. well, I mean, I think his words were vaccine hesitancy. 
You're encouraging people to be skeptical of the vaccine. You damn right. You better believe it. I was always highly, I'm skeptical of government anyway. And for government to be behind something that normally takes 10 years to do, and they did it in less than a year, and you accept that at face value and call me a little bit loony because I don't, who's the nut in that dynamic? I mean, who's the, who's the, who's the irresponsible person in that phenomenon? The, the, the government normally takes 10 years to do this. We fast-tracked it. Here I am with air coach. Ready, ready? We fast-tracked it. And we got it all done in less than a year. And we're to trust all of what normally takes 10 years took less than a year. And we're to trust all of that. The absurdity of that. And, and look, it's not as bothering to me that, that they got some of this wrong. I mean, they, they were under the gun. They were doing all they could. The, the bothersome part to me is how sure the bureaucrats were and how willing you were to do what they said. Fauci says the vaccine works, and so many of you. And I've got friends that ate, I mean, I ate lunch with friends who said, well, you're crazy to not get vaccinated, am I? Of course you are, Ken. That's absurd. I mean, Fauci says it works. The, the, the WHO says it works. The CDC said it works. The, Trump says it works, for God's sake. Uh, I'm still real skeptical of anything the government makes me do. And, and here we are. And once again, we know categorically that the vaccine doesn't stop infection, doesn't stop spread, and doesn't stop uh, carrying. Does it keep you out of the hospital? I don't know. I don't have any idea. How many people would have gone to the hospital had they not been vaccinated? Do you know? No. I mean, there's a big debate about it. I, I don't have any idea what the answer to that is. Uh, how many people are dead because they got vaccinated? Do you know the answer to that? No. Nope. I don't know the answer. Charles speculates. I speculate. We can all speculate. But we know for a fact that most of what they said at the beginning turned out to be absolutely untrue. And we kind of bought it hook, line, and sinker. Here's the quote. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. And that's where we are. We have a bunch of weak men and weak women who do what they're told to do because somebody wears a nice suit and has a microphone in their face. I mean, it's just that that is so troubling to me, how soft and willing we become. And and eventually it'll evolve and, and we'll need hard men and hard men will bring about better times. The better times will lead to soft men. And you know what the soft men will do? They'll do what Fauci says do. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. So Freehold, what is that now? Yeah. Uh, that is Muse uh, Knights of Sidonia. Okay, good deal. I thought that was. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I had it mixed up with um, Frank Sinatra, but I, I got you now. <laughs> yeah. All right, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Michael in Florence. Hello, Michael. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, you know, Ken, you just said uh, said something interesting. You said words matter, and they definitely do, and definitions matter. And what I've seen is a is a disturbing trend with liberals that uh, when the truth is inconvenient, they change the definition. They did it for vaccination. Now they're doing it for recession. They don't they can't define what a woman is? Um, you know, when genders are are inconvenient, they've changed the definitions for those now. It's just um, when the truth becomes inconvenient, they decide to change the truth, and it's. Um, it's really disturbing. That's all I got for you. That's a lot. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Thank you for listening. Like and, what, what is a recession, for example? Well, I mean, it, it really goes back to this. I mean, you know, once again, Kahaley's kind of putting me on this, this dominant narrative, dominant data. 
And um, the dominant narrative is one thing. The data clearly shows something else. I mean, if you listen to the narrative, let's shift, shift gears and leave the COVID. I would say leave COVID to go to politics, but COVID is political without question. But if you go to Trump, the dominant narrative is the January 6th commission is really, really, really causing Donald Trump and a potential presidential run problems. The data shows it's not. In seven of the most recent 10 polls, Donald Trump beats Joe Biden at a head-to-head contest. Uh, I don't know how he does against Gavin Newsom. I have no idea how he does against uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I don't have any idea how he does against anybody other than Joe Biden. But in the most 10 recent polls that have Biden and Trump head-to-head, Trump wins in seven of those. That's the data. The narrative is Trump is leaking oil. Trump has a flat tire. He can't limp around the track to get back to his crew. He's done. He's a political has-been. Same with the vaccine. The vaccine works. Why? Because Fauci says it does. And the WHO says it does. And the CDC says it does. And if the CDC, Burks, Fauci, uh, the bureaucratic administrators, I mean, if they all get on board, we'll create a narrative so dominant. It doesn't matter what the data is. It's a n- no clue what the data is. Nobody knew what the data was early in the vaccine, right? You didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, I think the point we made, I mean, we actually compared it to climate change. I mean, we have a stance on climate change. You know what it is? We believe the climate's changing. We have no idea how much man's contributing to that change. It may be one millionth of one degree. It may be one half of one degree. We don't know. And I think that is the smartest place to stand when it comes to climate change. When it comes to the vaccine and everybody says we're sure it works, it'll stop infection, it'll stop you from being a spreader, it'll stop you from um, from, from um, carrying. We knew, well, if you carry, you're going to be a spreader, obviously. Well, who knew that? How do, you, how do you fundamentally say that without clinical research? But, but once again, the dominant narrative, everybody gets on board and when I think about the confrontational era of American politics, I mean, I, I'm always talking about how confrontational things are now, how controversial things are, how combative things are. I'll tell you why. Because the dominant narrative is hard to get now. You've got people like me. You've got people like a, a guy in Greenville, someone at the beach, um, someone in Nashville, Tennessee, someone in, I mean, you got talk radio, you got blogs, you got podcasters, you got Steve Bannon's war room, like Bannon or not. He has a large audience. You got Joe Rogan on a podcast that has millions and millions and millions of viewers. Imagine this. Imagine if if you're CNN and you're you're part of the dominant you know narrative crowd. Uh, Joe Rogan has more viewers than you do. I mean, you got a 50 year head start and you've got a multiple billion dollar budget. Rogan has more power and influence on the narrative than you do. So when you've got these forces that have always been able to create a narrative. And it's kind of the only show in town, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and New York Times say it, it's over. I mean, that's that's the way people believe. Well, all of a sudden, Rogan says, I don't know if I buy that or not. Limbaugh says, I would dispute that, you know, and that, that's going to create a lot of dissension. And out of that dissension is going to be combativeness. And that's where we are today. So when someone says we need to more, be more civil and obedient, no, no. It is necessary that we have incivility. Uh, Disobedience is necessary. We need more incivility. We need more disobedience. We are far too polite to those in charge. We're far too obedient to those who appointed themselves masters of the universe. I mean, as the caller said, they redefine words. 
I mean, Merriam-Webster is now saying, okay, you know, the, the dominant narrative is that woman doesn't mean this. And they say now it means you identify as or you're typical of. That's not a definition. That's a debate. The, the dictionary is not there to debate what a word means. It's there to define what a word means. We're going to find out Thursday, more than likely, we're in a recession. Recessions historically have been the technical definition, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Guess what the Biden administration says? Well, that's not really what recession means. It's not really. And so, so the dominant narrative crowd have historically had their way. And, and Trump comes along. You know what the dominant narrative was? Vote against Trump. You got to vote for Jeb Bush or, or, or somebody other than. And, and we didn't do it. And that's, that's why we are. And I'm telling you guys, the only hope we have is to be more combative, more disobedient, more rabble-rousing. That's the only way we're going to get the attention. The data is on our side. The narrative may not be, but some of the narrative is turning. The data is on our side. People have very little faith and trust in their government. You know that. I know that. And I, and I would encourage you, strongly encourage you. I'm not going to say get vaccinated or not. That's a, that's a personal health decision that you need to make in consult with your physician. I would never in a million years tell you, hey, go take this medicine or, or hey, don't go take this medicine. But I am quite comfortable in telling you, don't you trust your governmental leaders. Don't you trust them for a second. Let's go to the phone. Don in Florence. Hello, Don. Good morning, Ken. Um, I just want to let you know I've only been listening to you for a couple of years, and I really like the way you have that data. You cover local issues. But the reason I called was I don't never hear nobody talk about this. If Trump and DeSantis are primarying together against each other, when they debate and talk about the issues, they don't need they need not to forget why they're there. It's an American first. They both I would say equally committed to the American first. And they need to not mudsling, but have raw, hard debate about the issues and the way they would approach them. And I think if they do that, I think that they will bring in people to vote for either one of them, whoever wins. If they show that they're committed to this American first, they will convince others who may not have voted for either one of them separately or if they mudsling. I think it's a, a mechanism with them together. I think it would be a beautiful thing if they could keep it clean. And Trump doesn't go on a tirade and insult DeSantis and back and forth like that because DeSantis can throw it back too. But if they stick with the issues that American First are for, they will actually grow their voter base. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. I mean, Rev asked me a second ago, you know, in a perfect world or in his perfect world, it would be Trump as president. DeSantis is VP. I mean, I don't want the words in yeah, your mouth. No, I like that. But, but well, I responded by saying, but, but that's not going to happen. I mean, here's what needs to happen. I mean, if I were master of the Republican universe, here's what needs to happen. If Trump decides to run, let him have it. I mean, Hogan may run. Pence may run. He'll kill them. I mean, he'll beat their brains out in a Republican primary. But let DeSantis be kind of an ambassador for America first. DeSantis does not need to associate with Trump. Not because they don't align. I think they do align by and large on what they're. I don't think there's a. I don't think there's a dispute between DeSantis and and Trump at all. I think they're big fans of one another. But DeSantis is a young guy. I mean, if Trump wants to run, you know what Ron DeSantis needs to do? 
support Donald Trump. But Rev asked an interesting point. What if Trump picked DeSantis as his running mate? Wouldn't that be the best America first could do? Yeah, but it's too risky for DeSantis. Why is it too risky for DeSantis? Because Trump could lose. And DeSantis is too young. He does not need to lose. So as much as I would be lured by the opportunity or enticed by, you know, my name and bright lights if I'm Ron DeSantis, if Donald Trump runs, he's going to be the nominee. Because DeSantis is the only person that could potentially beat him in a primary, but DeSantis would be crazy to roll the dice and do that. You know what else DeSantis doesn't need to do? Be his running mate. He needs to just, I mean, let, let Trump know, hey, man, I'm with you, I'm for you, but I've got no interest in being on the ticket. And the reason is DeSantis does not need to be associated with a losing presidential ticket. He just doesn't. DeSantis is a young guy. He is making a mark in Republican lore right now. Um, he is obviously the second choice of the America First Movement members or the membership of the America First Movement. But if DeSantis decides to run with Trump and Trump loses, guess what? DeSantis is a loser, and it's too early in his political career to lose a race that he's not in control of. See, I still think a, a President Trump and a Vice President DeSantis would be good for the country, but there you go looking a couple of steps down the road from a political and chess-playing What about I think you've got to play chess. I think it's too risky I get it. for DeSantis to run with Trump because Trump, you know it, I know it, could lose. If Trump loses, DeSantis loses, and DeSantis has too much going for him right now and too broad a future lying ahead to get beat. Let's go. Uh, let's take a break. I don't want to get too far behind. Take a break. Got a call. We'll get to the call as soon as we get back after paying some bills. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So whether it's Trump or DeSantis, my concern is if they lose legitimately or illegitimately, we're going to see 1960s-style civil strife. Um, but, but Ken, so part of the saying is weak men make hard times. Well, who are these weak men? Uh, everyone that I know that didn't take the vaccine out of principle was born post-baby boomer generation. Um, everyone who ridiculed me um, for not getting the vaccine was a baby boomer. So what, what generation were, were we supposedly protecting when we shut down schools? Well, supposedly it was the baby boomer generation. So we destroyed an entire generation of children to protect baby boomers, supposedly. You know, when we shut down churches and theaters and restaurants, it was all to protect baby boomers. So we destroyed ourselves because the baby boomer generation rolled over and forced their fear on their children and grandchildren. So as a collective, the baby boomer generation is the generation of weak men that's now creating these hard times. So thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Couldn't agree more. As a boomer himself, technically 1964 is the last year of the boomer, maybe 63. I was born in 1963, so technically I belong to the baby boomer generation, and we've lost our way. I mean, we've absolutely lost our way. I would be a young boomer, but a boomer nonetheless. Yes. I mean, there's no, the boomers are real good at telling other generations what, what they need to work on and how they, I mean, you, can you believe the color of his hair? Can you believe how many earrings he's got in his ear? Can you believe uh, how many tattoos they have on their forearm? Can you believe all of these cultural and social changes that have come by? But the baby boomer in general and on the collective or in the collective is so dependent upon government and has so little backbone. I didn't say every boomer. I'm certainly not insinuating that. 
But in the collective, the boomer has been an absolute disaster, an absolute disaster. The most gluttonous, consumptive, irresponsible spender of government funds in the history of humans. I mean, not, not American history, the history of humankind. No generation has taken so much from its government and given back so little as the baby boomer generation. Look at the debt. Look at Medicare. Look at Social Security. Look at who doesn't want to change the model. Look at who's leaving their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids with $30 trillion of debt and unwilling to touch Social Security, unwilling to touch uh, Medicare, unwilling to do some of the courageous and necessary things that it's going to take to get the country back on a, a sustainable financial path and future. So, yeah, as a boomer, my generation is guilty as charged, Jim. Let's go to the phone. We have, Or do we have time? Uh, no, we don't. Okay, we don't have time. Yeah, we'll I'm sorry. A, um, a, a self-deprecating lecture um, <laughs> of me and my um, fellow boomers. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Just text with Robert, maybe tomorrow after 8. I mean, that's, and I, we've got a lot to talk about when it relates to polling. Let's go to the phone, but uh, but but tentatively scheduled for tomorrow in the 8 o'clock hour, Robert Cahaley, senior pollster, excuse me, senior person yeah, be, who, does, right now? who collects data <laughs> that people are willing to pay for from, from Trafalgar. I uh, hope will be with us tomorrow after 8. If not, it'll be Thursday in the 8 o'clock hour. I'm, I'm just impressed that he has agreed to wake up early one of these yeah, days. Well, that's early for a consultant. They're yeah. like rock and roll singers. You know, they um they sleep all day and stay up all night. Let's go to the phone. John in Florence County. Good morning, John. Good morning, fellas. Ken, I, I got to disagree with you and Jim. Uh, I think you're buying into the one of their many narratives. It wasn't about baby boomers protecting. It's all about smashing the economy and causing chaos. They're already making plans to starve us so that we're weak. Ken, I tried to get you to read Mark Levin's book, American Marxism, and you you, you made fun of me a little bit. It's all in there about the kids smashing the economy, getting rid of the old people. That's what that's what's got to happen in order for them to take over. The rich people that made money from Moderna are buying up property, farmland. We're on our way, Ken. We're on our way. And we're not going to be socialist. We're going to be Marxist. And we're not going to have electric cars to drive. Those few that will work at government jobs will be taken to the job in a cattle car, not in a Tesla. We're not going to have cars, and we're going to live in multifamily units. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but you got to read that book. And Bill O'Reilly said the same thing in 2006. In his book, Culture Warrior. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. That's an interesting dynamic. I mean, when you, when you think about it, see, I'm a bit, what is it, 10 or 11,000 boomers retiring every day? I mean, I think that's the number in America. Um, it's going to create an enormous financial burden on the country. 
Um, I'm not saying you don't deserve to retire, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying every boomer. And if I if I discounted or dismissed somebody who's read Levin's book, I think Martin Levin's the smartest guy on radio. I mean, I think his persona gets out there a bit, but I think Martin Levin, from a historical perspective, I'm talking about somebody who understands history. When he had Mises, or was it um, George Schultz? He was somebody's chief of staff, if I'm not mistaken. Might have been Schultz uh, or Mises. I can't remember. But I think he was someone's um, chief of staff. Um, he's a constitutional law expert. I mean, Levin's a smart guy, and, and he's a provocateur. Uh, to some degree, all of us on the radio Mises. do that. He was Ed Mises' um, uh, chief of staff. Um, if, I, if I was dismissive of anything Mark Levin has ever said or written, I apologize because he's a serious man, but he's a, a real provocateur when it comes to um, ginning up the base or, or making his mark in conservative talk radio. Here's an interesting dynamic. Um, Jim has a, a problem with the boomers. I don't think he has a problem with his mom and dad. I don't think it's a problem with me, but we're talking about some of the, um, what are we talking about? They dominant data. So when you look at the dominant data, forget the narrative for a second. Let's talk about data. Uh, the narrative of the boomers is these young people don't want to work. They want to, you know, they want to sleep until noon. They want to eat hamburgers and, and play video games uh, to, to a degree. Some of that's true, but let's, let's accept if we will, some of the responsibilities of the boomer. Um, does, does young people who isolate and play video games cause problems to society? Yeah. I mean, I think isolation and, and, and the way we conduct our lives. I mean, I got a lot of here on, on marriage. I'm reading a lot about, about how many people aren't getting married today. It's not about how many people are. It's more interesting how many people aren't getting married today. How many Americans are living by themselves? That's an interesting number in America today. Roughly two of 10 adult Americans today live by themselves. That is a kind of a newfound phenomena in America. Um, marriage is in decline, dramatic decline. So yeah, I mean, there, there are, there are social trends and proclivities of young people that don't jihad with where we think the country needs to head. But let's be honest about the data. I mean, the data is empirical. The data is unavoidable. I didn't say every baby boomer is taking more from the government than they're giving. But the lion's share are, and when we look at Medicare, when we look at, um, when we look at Social Security, I know uh, you, you don't want to call them entitlements because you paid into Social Security and you paid into Medicare, but they're, in, they're, they're basically government entitlement programs because you're entitled to receive the benefit of Medicare. You're entitled to receive the benefit of Social Security. I mean, there's something you do pay into, no question about it. But when you look at the financial dynamic of the country and you look at the enormous burden that Social Security and Medicare both are causing, uh, it's it's hard to believe that we're going to sit idly by. In other words, I'll say this, Rev. Um, is it okay for you to make sure you get your retirement when you were told you would and your Medicare benefit when you were told you would if it leads the country into the financial abyss. I mean, is that kind of, I mean, that's kind of what we're trying to square up. Um, my great, great grandkids will have to deal with that. I don't care. Give me my social security. Give me my Medicare because I paid in and I'm entitled to it. Okay. Politicians that we elect have not demonstrated the, the moral capacity or the, the intellectual fortitude to make some of these real hard decisions. So in essence, I mean, you're not doing it cause you're not voting. I mean, you're, you're not voting to reform Social Security or reform Medicare, but, but the majority of Republicans running for office who want to garner support of the baby boomers, what do they say? 
hands off Medicare, hands off Social Security. How many of you older than I have voted for a candidate that said, let me at Social Security and watch what I do? Let me at Medicare and show me and let, you know, no, I mean, that's that you're voting against your own self-interest. And we're all self-preservationists to some degree. But I think we're at a different, I mean, I think there's a very interesting crossroads here between uh, what I'll call the millennials and the Gen X's and Y's and Z's. I mean, some of those younger, my kids, I mean, I don't know how Jim is. I think Jim said he's in his early 30s, if I'm not mistaken. I asked him one day over the air. Um, we believe, and I'm talking about boomers, we believe some of the social and culture abnormalities of these young people are going to be the ruination of the country, right? I mean, I hear it a lot. I mean, the people my age and older, you know, these young people don't have any moral standards. That they don't have any, uh, you know, the, the 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 moral boundaries that they conduct their lives on are just fundamentally different and not in America's best interest. But they could also, you got to be, you got to be self-evaluating here for a second. You got to be introspective. I mean, I don't like some of the um, some of the loosey goosey way of which morals and ethics and uh, culture. We're talking about gender neutrality, and I mean, we've kind of embraced that. Older people are like, I don't want to go there, and young people are like, well, I mean, it's the way people are today. I mean, I think there are dangers there, but let's accept the fact that baby boomers have contributed enormously to the decline of America as a superpower by the debt we've incurred funding these programs that have, by and large, benefited whom? The greatest generation and the baby boomer. And um, so I think there's mutual blame. Uh, you know, I am worried. Uh, I think we talked last week about, you know, not wearing a tie to church. And the next thing you know, someone's wearing, you know, pajama pants and flip-flops. Uh, that, that's kind of a cultural norm now. I think there's a societal price we pay for allowing that to be normalized. But, but I think as a boomer, I've got to accept the responsibility that I've been a part of a generation that have allowed the debt to just, just run up like it has, and Social Security and Medicare and the funding of those entitlement programs has been the largest driver of the debt. 70% of all the money spent in Washington is on autopilot. I mean, it's already, it's, it's, it's to fund Medicare, it's to fund Medicaid, it's to fund Social Security, it's to service the debt. And then you've got defense spending. Ain't much left over after that is the case. And and I think unless we are willing to reform that, we leave people like Jim. We may not like their tattoos. We may not like their haircuts. We may not like the way they live by themselves and, and um, you know, uh, cohabitat without a marriage license. But but we've got a lot of um we've got a lot of blame to share by our financial irresponsibility. Um Nah, just kind of a that's kind of a rant. I'm not accusing the baby boomers of destroying America. I'm not going to accuse the millennials of destroying America. Each generation has its unique quality characteristics and I and flair, but but I just think for boomers to look at young people and say, they're the problem. I mean the morality of these young people, the the, the cultural dispositions of these young people, that's the problem. I think the youngs look at us and say, How much more financially irresponsible can you possibly be? Really? Uh, retire at 62? I mean, get a benefit at 62 and live 82? So you work 20 years and we're going to fund your government-induced retirement, a government-funded retirement for as long as you worked? I mean, that's just so fundamentally flawed. And if we, had a, if we had a genuine interest in the well-being of the country and we weren't such self-preservationists, the, the boomers, the millennials, the, all of us could get together and say, this is broke. Let's try and fix it. That's also broke. Let's take a swing 
at it as well. Let's go to the phone. Pat in Florence. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. Good, good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Doing good. How are you? Um, I'm doing good. Thank you very much. Uh, I am a retired boomer, just recently retired June the 1st, and so far it's a pretty good gig. But uh, the reason I called, you were uh, talking earlier about the professors that you have on uh, the show on, you know, once a week and that sort of thing. I don't know if everybody knows. Um, you may know, but there is a website out there called RateMyProfessors.com, and uh, you can just Google Rate My Professors and <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you can put in any school that you want to. So you could put in Francis Marion University and see all the professors. And um, um, just wanted to say that Dr. Kaufman, 84% of the students who have taken him would take him again. Um, 96% of the students who have taken uh, Dr. Will Bolt would take him again. Now, does that speak of their politics? No. But does it speak to them as a person? Uh, yes, probably so. So, uh, you know, if people are wondering about um, uh, their kids taking professors and that kind, of, that kind of thing. That is a very good uh, resource because, you know, these uh, young people, they're not going to mince words and they're not going to hold their tongue. So just wanted to mention that and um, enjoy the show. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate that. I think our arguments make more sense when they're challenged. I mean, I love the debate. I love the dialogue. I love the disagreement. I mean, I'm texting with a friend of mine this morning who's a, uh, a political friend about what I think is coming their way. Um, he disagrees with me. I, I enjoy that. I, I think we, we should challenge ourselves to be exposed to people who have a different perspective than we do. And I think very often talk radio is guilty of being incredibly monolithic. You know, um, from the time this host comes on till the time they go off, it is just the redundancies of a belief system that doesn't want to encounter anybody that thinks differently than they do. Um, I think that's sad, unfortunate, and not conducive to, to, to being effective over the air. I mean, I enjoy Scott coming in and Dr. Bolt coming in. I enjoy somebody calling in. I mean, we before, well, when Trump was elected, we had a lot of liberals calling in saying how lousy he was. <laughs> I'm trying to think if we've had anybody call and defend Biden. No, I don't think Not we recently. have. That's kind of interesting. It is. It's very interesting. You comment on that a lot like, hey, why is it he called lately? Well, you know why he hadn't called. The guy he wanted to be president sucks at the job. And he didn't want to say, hey, I was wrong. You know, as bad as Trump was, this guy's worse. I get that. But, but I think having vigorous debate is essential to self-governance. And, and I, you know, I, I'm one that doesn't believe it has to always be respectful. I don't believe it has to be very civil. I mean, I think incivility is going to be a part of us getting better. I'll make a prediction. If we continue to be civil and obedient and respect one another to the nth degree, we're not going to get to a better place. I mean, if you fundamentally believe in something, and I fundamentally believe in something else, for us to get to, uh, I mean, there's, there's going to be some tension, right? I mean, there, there's going to be some, some emotion, some passion in that. And I think right now in American discourse, um, and maybe this goes back to we hadn't been hungry yet. You know, you were asking yesterday about what would it take to turn us in into Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. uh, be hungry. You know, we're we're upset that the supply chain, we're bothered that the semiconductors aren't available. We're bothered that we can't get the latest, greatest SUV that we've got money. We're bothered that the wait at a restaurant is longer than it normally is. But we ain't hungry. 
And, and in society, we're always bothered by something. Uh, conservatives are bothered by liberals. Liberals, liberals are bothered by conservatives. You want me to shut up and I want you to shut up, but nobody's been hungry. I mean, I'm talking about on average. I mean, you've still got, you know, homeless and hungry people in America. And then we try our best to try and take care of those, whether it's public or private funded. Um, but, but when Scott comes on the show, you know, it doesn't matter to me if 84% of his students would take him again or 96%. He has a right to espouse his views and he's a guest to the show. Scott didn't call me and said, Hey man, I'm, I'm somewhat of a, um, I'm a left of center professor. Would you let me on that show to argue with you every Tuesday? I reached out and asked him to come on. That makes him my guest. When a candidate for the Senate or a candidate for the House or a candidate for county council or a candidate for mayor comes on this show, I don't think I owe them what I owe a guest. They're asking you for your vote. There's got to be an interrogation that happens. There, there's got to be a... um. Uh, a getting to the bottom of whatever it is they believe and why they believe that. And I think Scott brings a historical perspective. You know, historically speaking, here's why this probably won't work or why this might work. Now, you've got to always understand and take it for what it's worth because he would, I mean, he would profess to be in a left of center college mm-hmm. professor. And his right? opinions you know, sometimes sure. are very frustrating to me. I mean, they're, they're absolutely frustrating. But, but, you know, I owe but I him, like him, but I owe him civility. I owe him because he is a guest on the show. The only reason he's here is we asked him to come on. When, when a person running for the house calls and says, hey, I want to come on that show, um, you got to be ready to answer some questions. And I'm not Dan Rather. I'm not the gotcha guy. I don't know what you did in, in the eight. You know, somebody sends me a message. Hey, when they were 18, they had a DUI. Well, I mean, go, go call the state newspaper. They may be interested in that. I'm not. But, but I do believe that, that big ideas need to be contested and self-governance has to be challenged. And if you believe in a big government and I believe in a small government, there's no way to debate that without some degree of tension. And when you have tension, guess what you have? You normally have emotion. When you have emotion, guess what? Somebody could get mad at somebody else. That's not a bad thing. And, and I'll make a prediction. If we believe we can fix America by being civil and obedient to one another and respectful at all times of one another will continue down the path we're headed down. But if we believe that, that, that forces and factions on, on both sides are going to dig in, double down, triple down, quadruple down, not back down from what they believe, there's going to be tension. There, there's going to be tension. There's going to be, uh, some disagreements and it may be, it may get a little more confrontational or combative than most people are comfortable with, but I think it's essential. I mean, I, I really do. I think we live in an age right now, today, that is going to require um, a lot of combative politics. And maybe that's why people find Trump um, so interesting, because he's never shied away from any of the combativeness. And, and Trump's never said, I mean, remember what Carville said, Donald Trump didn't run to bring America together. I mean, Donald Trump ran because he said America's fundamentally broken. And to fix it, you got to win. And that goes back to something I said last week, and I'll stand by this because someone challenged me on it. The era of compromise has been suspended. I mean, I don't know if it's forever done with. I don't know if we'll ever get to a place where Republicans and Democrats can, can compromise on some of their disagreements. But right now in America, the politics that we are operating under, there's going to be a winner and a loser. There's not going to be a compromising um, vision that gets us to a better place. 
somebody is going to win and somebody is going to lose. The left has made their mind up that they want to win. I mean, there is no doubt about it. That they would bury you, they would bury me, and and they would they would stomp on our bodies. That's what the left would do. The right has never decided. The right has always held out hope. What did Romney say of the Atlantic? You know, the 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 American experiment requires moderation and a certain temperament and compromise. No, it it does, and it, and it most times has. But today, that's not the case. Today's political um today's political period will be historically reviewed as the period of time in which one side won and one side lost and i'm hell bent on being on the winning side take a break back in a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven about nine thirty on a tuesday morning wayne mulling our general manager and executive vice president is that yes, i want to make sure i get the right title here yeah, now he's vice president well, he's right, the boss, where i come from is called the boss man uh, so the boss That's man right. is in the studio, and I'm on my best behavior. He was asking us a second ago, well, why don't you do this, and why are you doing that? I said, well, I mean, we're, we're doing the best we can, and I want the boss man to know we're doing the absolute best we can. But Wayne periodically checks in with us to tell us or tell you about the other things Community Broadcasters is doing because we've made a – and I mean this sincerely, guys. A lot of people say things. Radio is in transition. Um, it's digital. It's distant. It's not – personal it's not intimate we have a uh, a cluster of stations and a model of which uh, allows us to be close to the people we serve and wayne is committed to that so uh, periodically he comes in and updates you our listeners on other things i mean he knows we rant and raise all you know what on the radio but but that's not all we do we actually yeah. integrate ourselves in the community um charities and worthwhile endeavors so wayne without further ado what sort of uh, events or 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 things are we involved in as we speak as a as a broadcast company all right thank you ken i appreciate it you know i've often said that the name of our company is community broadcasters and that's not just a cliche we mean that because we're all about the community tomorrow we're going to be doing something all day long for 12 hours on a couple of our sister stations that we uh, is one of my favorite things to do. There's an organization here in the PD called Lighthouse Ministries. And Lighthouse Ministries does just a, a tremendous job at helping people, and we want to help them. This is a group that was started in 1996 that helps over 2,100 families a year, and they do it with 50 volunteers. I, I, I just I don't even know how they do it. But they do a tremendous, and when I say help people, it's not like they give somebody a pat on the back, a $20 bill, and say, go your way. Uh, this is a group that helps everything from uh, people that are hurting that can't pay their rent. They help them pay their rent. Uh, they can't pay their utilities. They'll make sure their utilities are not shut off. They have a program called the Ramp Program that builds ramps for people's houses that are uh, incapacitated and maybe on a wheelchair to help them. Uh, they have a, uh, a single mothers who are on low uh, income assistance. They help them with everything from diapers to formula to a training program on how to budget themselves, how to build a budget, and how to pay for their essentials. They have a program for families with middle school children that they teach them everything from uh, proper discipline to how to build character in their children and 
teach them the facts of life and things that they need to know. I mean, I don't know of anybody that's doing anything like that as well in the PD as this group. And those things can only be done with money. It takes money. And so tomorrow on our uh, Cat Country Station on 99.3 and on uh, our Almighty FM 105.1, the Gospel Station, all day long from 6 until 6, we're going to be asking people to give to help Lighthouse Ministries. And you need to remember one thing, helplighthouse.com. That, those two words, helplighthouse.com, and you can go there and you can give online to help this ministry and this organization to continue on helping people in the PD. And that's what we're doing all day tomorrow. Very well said. And um, and you're always welcomed into this studio, obviously, is the boss, right, Rev? Mm-hmm. I mean, who are we to say? Well, he asked me yesterday. He said, hey, can, can I come no, he on he told talk? you. He didn't no, ask no, you no, anything. No, he, no, he, he did you. ask. He did ask. And I said, Wayne, you know you don't have to ask. Just come on in. Well, I mean, when we've got an event, <laughs> and, and you guys are a big part of who we are. I mean, our audience is a, is a big extension of who we are here at Community broadcaster so when we're doing something not specific to talk radio or what we right. do we want um we want wayne to come on and include our listeners because we know how charitable and giving you are so um right. so there what wayne solicited an invitation or given an invitation and i and we need your support and i you know we know how generous our listenership is so um there's an opportunity to help people who just need help and that's, that's right. what that's what life's kind of all uh, all about yes sir Thank you, sir. Yes, thank, thank you. you for the time. Wayne Mully. We'll take a break. No, we won't. No, we won't. We won't take a break, Freehold. We'll uh, we'll stay early. here. Do you have a call? Uh, no. Okay, that means it's my turn. Yeah, right? it's your turn. Wayne, Wayne had his turn to talk. <laughs> the callers have had their turn um, to talk. Hey, you know, we're talking a lot about recessions this morning, and we're talking about two numbers or two data points that'll come out, one tomorrow, one Thursday. Tomorrow, um, the, 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 the Federal Open Market Committee will raise interest rates, we expect, by 75 basis points. Uh, once they do that, um, that'll get the, what would I call the um, the benchmark policy lending rate at about 2.50. I went back and looked this morning. I said, it's either 225, 250, or 275. It's actually 2.50 will be the um, the benchmark lending rate. That would be, um, in historical measures, kind of, kind of a, a new, neutral mark. I mean, in other words, that's not to try to slow the economy down. That's not to try to speed the economy up. 2.50 would be, I mean, it's still historically low, but but it's it's not historically low when you consider the amount of debt and macroeconomic stimulus. Um, so, the, so the federal funds target rate at 2.50, uh, raising the rate by 75 basis points the day before we think, we predict we're going to get news that that confirms a lot of our suspicions of us being in a recession. I don't know that we've ever seen anything like this because Rev, the majority of interest rates, uh, when you raise interest rates, you're basically trying to get us to a point where interest rate does not stimulate economic growth. Instead, we're raising rates into a recession. That never happens you, you, you raise interest rates to slow the, the economy down. And the economy has apparently slowed down tremendously from, uh, what, a year, year and a half ago when we did all the stimulus and, and it's printed money and gave everybody money. Here, you want some, take some. Here, you need some, take some. Here, another check coming from the federal government um, in the name of macroeconomic stimulus. And Larry raised a very interesting point today. Um, and maybe, maybe we need to give Yellen a little bit benefit of the doubt here. 
because we're th- this is a very different time in the American economy. Historically, we have looked at two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Technically, that defines a recession. That's what I've always been told. Or I does mean, it? All of my adult life. Well, I mean, <laughs> or, or does it? You're right. Um, the Commerce Secretary said last week, I found this a bit interesting, um, that we're talking ourselves into a recession. Talking about dominant narrative and dominant data, um, how do you talk yourself into a recession? Um, she's basically saying the fundamentals of the economy are good. They're not, but she says they are. And we got to be careful not to talk ourselves into a recession. To me, that is with clarity proof that these people believe the spoken word is as important as what the facts are. In other words, if I say these things as articulately as I think I can say these things and as convincing as I think I can say these things, who cares what the data says? And we live in this very ambiguous age and era anyway. What is marriage? Well, whatever you decided to be. What is a what is a woman? Well, it depends. Um, what is a recession? Well, you know, we've historically said this, but who's to say we can't change that? So we're changing the meaning of words. We're changing some of the economic realities and and definitions that we've I don't know become historically accustomed to. But uh, but I just think it's it's, it's interesting that tomorrow. We're going to raise rates by 75 basis points, and the next day, we're going to find out we're in a recession. That has never happened before. I mean, I'm trying to think of, I read a good bit last night on Bloomberg. Bloomberg had a good bit of um, writing about it. And then here's what happened in, in the first quarter. So in the first quarter, either the Kansas City Fed or the Atlanta Fed, um, the median prediction of economists who uh, the Fed consults with gave a, a mark of, positive point for growth. In other words, less than one half of 1%, but not a recession. So so their prediction, their estimates were, you know, positive growth of less than one half of 1%. Well, I mean, that's, that's almost standing still. The revision came out at negative 0.1.6. Excuse me, negative 1.6, not negative 1.1, negative 1.6. So you had a swing between uh, the medium prediction or estimate and the reality of two points. Do you know how many billions or hundreds of billions of dollars of economic activity you got to miss to be that wildly wrong? And it leads you to believe, do these people just simply delay the inevitable or are they just bad at their work? In other words, does the, does the Biden White House go to the, the economists who make these estimations and say, hey, we know the bad news is coming, but just don't give it to us right now. I mean, don't, don't, you know, the economist goes to the White House or probably goes to commerce and says, um, hey, the numbers don't look good. How good can you make them look? Uh, we could probably defend positive growth point four, but it's, in the, it's going to, I mean, they're going to revise it negative. When will they revise it? It'll be several weeks. Okay, give us several weeks. Um, and then these projections come out and then they don't jihad with, you know, what the realities are. And, and I, you know, I'll make a, a prediction that the estimate tomorrow, or excuse me, Thursday, will be uh, 0.2 positive growth, and then it'll be revised to probably negative 1.5, somewhere thereabout. That is technically a recession. So while we're debating on whether a recession may or may not come next year, the point I'm arguing is we're already in a recession. And I think Walmart's earnings and Walmart's financial report yesterday laid it out about as GI Joe with a Kung Fu grip as you can possibly lay it out. People are buying gas because they must. They're buying groceries because they must. 
but when they buy the gas and grocery, they don't have the extra $100 left to go buy the iPad, or excuse me, go buy the iPod earphones, or, or to go to the movie, or go to the restaurant. And that's why we're seeing a significant contra- uh, contraction in the economy outside of the essentials. And and when you look at Walmart's report, if you read Walmart's report, and I did, uh, it basically says that the, the groceries are not the high margin items, and the reason their same-store sales, or the profitability of same-store sales is in decline, is because when the person who normally spends 50 bucks on gas and grocery spends $100 on gas and grocery, they don't meander over to the apparel department or the electronics department and spend the other 50 bucks. They've got 100 bucks to spend. I mean, some people have 1000 some people have 100 some people have 50 Whatever that number is, you're spending the lion's share of your money on the essentials like food and fuel, and you're passing on the discretionaries because you must. And Walmart makes a lot more on a sweatshirt than they do a, a dozen eggs. So when you buy that dozen eggs, Walmart makes a little profit on it, but not much. When you go buy that sweatshirt, that would be where their high margins are. So their profitability, not only are the same store sales in, in a bit of a decline, but the profitability of those high those same store sales are in not free fall by any stretch. Walmart will always figure out a way to make a buck. But you got to believe that data is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, it's not the narrative. I mean, the narrative oh, right. is not on the, I mean, there's a commentary that goes along with all these financial disclosures, but, but the narrative tomorrow will be, um, the fed is making, um, Hey, on inflation. It's not, I mean, inflation is still rampant. It's out of control and it's going to take probably another one and a half percentage, uh, another 150 basis points interest rate hike to get inflation back to a manageable place and let some of the stimulus work itself through the economy. But, but as Joe said this morning, uh, what does that do to the debt, the financing of our debt? I mean, you start adding, remember, a $180,000 mortgage today costs you exactly what a $300,000 mortgage cost you in December. Imagine if you owed trillions and trillions and trillions and interest was one and a half points higher today than it was, you know, six or eight months ago. It's not a pretty sight. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Got, got a kind of an interesting article here talking about the professors not being here today, getting back in the groove of school. Some of you like them on here. Some of you don't like them on here. Some of you think I should uh, play harder ball, you know, when they're on here about some of the disagreements. We have um, the Harvard Crimson published its annual survey last Monday, not yesterday, but, the you know, the previous Monday on the Faculty of Arts and Sciences in the School of Engineering and Applied Science. The poll asked a question to 1,182 faculty members, 4,000, excuse me, 476 faculty members responded to the survey. That makes me suspicious there anyway um, about your political bias. So they sent it to 1,182 faculty members. Only 476 filled out, responded the survey. Uh, among the findings, uh, 45 Percent of the faculty identified as liberal, 37% identified as very liberal. That's an 8% increase from the year before in the very liberal category. Um, 16.8% identified as moderate, 1.46% of the faculty who responded identified as conservative. The reason the majority of others didn't respond is they didn't want to tell people how liberal they probably were. Um, And you've heard me rant 
on and on and on and on and on about intellectual diversity. We mm-hmm. lack intellectual diversity in the media. We lack intellectual diversity really in the corporate boardroom. We're getting to a point where we lack intellectual diversity. We lack it on college campuses and uh, and the Harvard Crimson, once again, an annual um, report. Now, this is interesting to me. Why is this interesting to me? Because it's not just a survey of the social science and art professors. It includes the engineering professors, some of the hard science uh, professors. And despite including uh, some of the engineering and some of the hard science, uh, which we've always heard, those folks are a little more conservative. That number turns out at 1.46%. Something's not right there. Now, now, once again, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination comparing Carolina Clemson, Coastal Francis Marion to, to some of these uh, prestigious and pedigreed universities like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Duke, Vanderbilt. Uh, I'm trying to think of a couple of uh, any Ivy League school. And then you add maybe a Stanford and a Duke and a, and a Northwestern uh, Vanderbilt would be another prestigious academic institution. There aren't enough conservatives on campus. They're just simply well, or America not, is somewhat split down the middle, one way or another, close to the middle. Then, wouldn't you think that the professors should be, but but closer but if, to split down the middle than that? Yeah, of course. But but you're talking about you're depending. You're such a reasonable man. You're talking about dominant data. I mean, you want the the, the college administration and and faculty to represent America, right? I mean, isn't that kind of what we're told about, you know, you you need a black person doing this. You need a a woman doing that. You need an Indian doing this. Uh, We we need more diversity. Diversity is what made America great. Well, the lack of diversity in the media is is a little bit troubling. The lack of diversity in academia is highly suspicious. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think we need intellectual diversity. We need a debate of ideas and and beliefs and and opinions. We're just not getting that in, in the places that write history. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Do you think many Trump voters are going to write history? No. I mean, are you going to have a hand in writing history? (laughs) Academics and media, academics and journalists, by and large, write and transcribe uh, history. So 100 years from now, when somebody looks back and says, there was this guy that was kind of a reality TV show host and and a real estate billionaire, and he beat this all-star lineup of Republican candidates how did that happen? I mean, what happened there? Do you believe make America great again? So some of the enthusiasts are going to be included in that debate. Do you believe the America first political movement is going to be involved? No, it'll be, it'll be journalists and it'll be members of academia. They will transcribe, you know, and memorialize or archive whatever is thought of that political movement that happened at that time a hundred years ago. Back in a minute. 